With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. The first time this was, we created the union, the union was the capital T-H-E, the United States of America, unquote. Proper name of the entity. What was it? That was 1781 that we adopted the Articles of Confederation. And then we came along with the Constitution in what, 1788? It was ratified. Proposed in 1787, ratified in 1788, first time ratified by the people. And we see something interesting in the preamble of the Constitution. It says, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Telling us that there's the, we the people of the United States, in order to form a union, they're not forming a new they're making an existing union more perfect. What union is that? It's the union that was created, the perpetual union created under the Articles of Confederation. The name of that union is the United States of America. But our Constitution is the document that created or constituted an entity that we call the United States. United States and the United States of America are not the same two. They are not identical. They don't identify the same entity. Different entities. Big difference between them that I've identified, and there may be others, but what I've been able to see is that if you look to the Articles of Confederation, you'll see that it consists, the perpetual union consists only of the states of the union. There is no proviso for territories in the Articles of Confederation. There is no proviso for a, a, for a district such as Washington, D.C. in the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation create a union that is composed entirely of the states of the union. The United States, which was created in 1788, ratified in 1788, Seven years later, ratified. The United States does include territory. It does include a place, that, uh, a district uh, such as Washington D.C. These are two different entities, and when the president is called to deliver the State of the Union, supposed to be talking about the condition of the state of the United States of America not the territories, not Washington, D.C., 
Who would imagine that sounds pretty confusing to most people, but nevertheless, it's important to understand. We're going to take a break uh, for a couple of commercials. I'll be back in a moment with James Corbett from the Corbett Report. Please stay tuned. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Alfred Addis, and this is Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver, 
for all your gold and silver coin needs. Our guest is James Corbett of the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. Uh, James has been living and working in Japan for 11, 11 years now. He started the Corbett Report uh, eight years ago as an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. So editorial writer of the International Forecaster, electronic newsletter created by the recently deceased economic analyst Bob Chapman. And, uh, so we're talking to James. He's in Japan. Um, it's in the morning time, and we're here uh, here in Dallas at I don't know, am I here earlier than you, or am I here later than you right now, James? Hello, James. That would, I think technically that would be earlier. All right. We're here earlier. It'll be, we'll catch up with James, and I don't know, we'll catch up with James in several hours. Ah, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you doing today? Start with, so we'll start with the problem which jumped up at people from the, uh, the Swiss move or the peg uh, for the Swiss franc relative to the euro. We're surprised, not so much the reacted as if the consequences greater than anyone, perhaps even the Swiss National Bank had anticipated. I think it was more bang than I expected for their buck, or about nothing. No, it's definitely a do about something, and I'm not sure what their expectation was particularly, but I think this was a move that was more of a As a result, the Swiss franc was also subject to deflation. Well, if it moved with it, I assume that's what happened. Is that, is that true? Well, yes, more or less. So every time it was coming up against that 1.2. Anything like constantly buying dollars? <laughs> it, it really subsidizing. That's about the exacerbated. Thursday afternoon. Yeah. Yes. 
European stimulus program, they're expecting somewhere in the range of 600 programs. And there's, I mean, there's so many different things that are going on. That's the reason. So they just let it float. And of course, just letting the, the controls go like that with no some huge effects on the market. Still processing what they call and they're all kind of interlinked and interrelated. Latest one, uh, just just a few Of course, the actual message Yeah, I, I'm looking at a report from 24 Hour Gold, and one of the points in there, in the aftermath, coupling. Says, why didn't you tell us you were going to end the Fed? Leads International Monetary Fund's chief, Christine Lagarde. Whether or not she really didn't know is not known to me. I think she didn't know they were going to do it. And if the Swiss National Bank is acting unilaterally without other central banks, other banks and central banks realizing what's happening indicates that the thieves may be falling out. Seeing here evidence that banks are no longer acting in concert. Every man for himself. And we see more evidence of that in Canada. Canada um, what you were just saying, the Canadians have said, hey, we're, we're going to change things and do what's best for Canada, and we're not even giving anyone any notice. We're just going to make this happen. Implications of this: Are they going to be able to maintain, hold everybody marching to the beat of the same drummer, or is this the beginning of every man for himself and some sort of disintegration? More or less in unison, or time 
what's coming. The way a centrally planned. We had a record high at the Dow Jones. The market moves exactly. on one exactly. word. And everyone, everyone has to turn to their, that page in their... Transactions are they are trying to set that reality. It's well, it's it's staff constant. Even if you don't like what the central banks are doing, you can have a certain amount of confidence that they have the power, sufficient power, to do what they want to do. All by itself, just having that power, whether you think it's good or bad, it inspires a kind of confidence. Maybe, maybe you celebrate that confidence, maybe it's grudging confidence, but once you see that, whoops, wait a second, these guys aren't really in control, that detracts from confidence, and confidence, a psychological concept, is key, critical, to the operation of the whole system, as are expectations. This is one of the things that disturbs me about markets that are running not on the basis of objective reality. What is the profit loss? How, how deep in debt is this particular corporation? How's it doing financially? Now, that's not the case. Nobody's concerned about that. I won't say no one's concerned. That's what they're mostly concerned about are not the investment investors. What is the psychology of the investors? That's what the Dow Jones is measuring. More so, I, I can't even say more so, but at least significant. The psychology of the investors rather than the objective and financial realities of the corporation. That strikes me as strange. It's, this thing is running on psychological issues. Evidence that it can't be stated. That, do you agree with that, or do you think I'm missing the boat? numbers that were asked to keep up. Hey, even if you don't like what Central Bank is doing. Throw in the, the, the standard Wizard of Oz analogy to Mandy. But it, it's actually particularly happening. 
sold, road is sold, etc. These flippers were actually originally that was the way home. So. immersed in the details what it means ultimately at base is if we believe in this force as we know is heavily manipulated against I agree with you, but when you say you can change it, we can change it. If we perceive this correctly, we can change the system. I think if we perceive it correctly, we can see that the system is fraudulent and fragile and perhaps beginning to collapse even as we speak, although it might not, they may be able to survive for several more years. I don't know. I can't say how long that is. We can cause the system to collapse with our loss of confidence in it, then we change it and something more positive in its place. One thing right to tear it down, another thing to put yes. something in its place. Yes, yes. You're right to make that distinction because the awareness is the first I talked about on my program many, many, many everything from starting I, your own victory garden uh, or participating things of that nature. central bankers. But it's, those are the types of ways the, the relief living in what would, I mean, at any rate, most of us have There are people with very large, you know, investments and portfolios and nest eggs that uh,
will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping I'm Alfred Adams here on the Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver, 1-800-375-4188, for all your gold and silver collections. This is James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com, CorbettReport.com. We've been talking about... National Bank decoupling from the euro, they would take to the euro. Uh, the Swiss franc is set at 1.2, you know, for euro. That's on 6th of 
September of 2011. At the same day, gold peaked at 1,920. They set the peg for the place of strength to the euro 1.2. Day gold peaked since then. Just looking at a coincidence. Do you think there was any causality involved in the fact that put it this way, what had happened to the prices of it's been up by it's up a hundred and fifteen dollars in the last thirty days. Since since the uh, since last Thursday, I suppose it's up 45, 50 bucks. I don't know exactly, but somewhere in that neighborhood. But it seems a little far-fetched to me. It is an interesting coincidence if that's all it is. Well, I, I think we can quite obviously see that gold in the last week has risen because of the safe haven. Bets uh, basically that investors are making right now. They've, they've seen the, the sort of carnage that took place last, last week as a result of the announcement, and they saw that now we have large foreign currency brokers going belly up and things of this nature. We don't know how it's going to play out in the markets yet, so let's find a safe place to go. That's why every single sovereign bond fell uh, uh, last week. Uh, uh, the yields increased. Um, as a result of all of this money going into the, the, the bond market, uh, except for Greece, of course, it should be noted where the bonds <laughs> still continue to do bad. Uh, surprise, surprise. I should say the yields are going down. The yield went up in Greece, as usual. But um, but also, of course, gold is the other safe haven, and that's why that's why the money flowed into that. Now, is the reverse true back in 2011? Was that uh, gold, money coming out of the gold markets and into into what exactly? Um, into the markets? Because they knew that the, uh, the Swiss uh, National Bank was now going to be more or less backing up the euro. I mean, and yes, I mean, I think there was, there was absolutely some extent to which that was true. I don't know if that can account for everything. I mean, there are other things going on in the gold market, but I think that was one important part of it. And uh, and so now we're seeing the unwinding of that. Uh, have we hit a bottom with gold? Uh, that's that's debatable. I mean, there, you've got people like Gary Gantz saying it's going down to 700, and you have other people on the other side of that equation saying <laughs> it's going to the moon. And I'm not particularly convinced or swayed one way or another. I certainly do expect it to be at its current trading range um, for, the, for the foreseeable future until the unforeseeable future of tomorrow, <laughs> when we'll find out what the ECB decision, what way it looks. And I think, again, this European uh, Central Bank decision that Draghi is going to make on the stimulus it will be structured is going to be exceptionally important. In fact, potentially important for the fate of the Eurozone itself. And that's because there are some deep internal tensions in the Eurozone right now, as there have been for many years, I should say. Oh, really, centuries. Yes. Well, I mean, when the idea that you can put all of those European nations together and get them to sing Kumbaya, after they've been fighting with each other for centuries, 
Right? This has never been a stable place exactly. Oh, um, of course not. And, and on uh, top of that political tension, now we have the financial getting all of these different economies together in a single European Central Bank that's trying to manage a single currency for these. Yeah. Germany in the north down to Greece and Italy and Spain. There, these economies have very little in common and, in fact, are in completely different tendencies. So trying to manage that is, I mean, it would be nightmarish even if they had the best of intentions. But, of course, from the German perspective, and if situation were going well, albatross around its neck, and that albatross is called Greece or Spain or Italy or whatever the crisis moment of. So, I mean, that tension of fighting over the, the, the direction of the Eurozone itself has certainly uh, been there since exacerbated by the problems in recent years. And so now they're trying to figure out how to structure this European stimulus and whether individual national central banks will have to kick in um, this or whether it will all be ECB stimulus. So they'll ring fence those economies that are not doing well, and that could inflame tensions with uh, Germany or France or it's a very interesting situation right now, and it's bringing to, the, to a head a lot of these things. So we have meetings going on in Davos right now to figure out what's going to happen, how they're going to continue to organize perhaps the new world order and whatever. Are they caught in a situation where they must all of a sudden say, wait a second, wait a second. That plans, we're going to do them here at the meeting, and it may even be the European Central Bank. They had plans, they're going to do it, they had a certain idea in mind for tomorrow, and then the Swiss National Bank said, <laughs> surprise, surprise, we're decoupling. Has that set some of their plans on the back burner or caused them to say, wait, wait, what are we going to do now? I think it, it, it has at least caused second thoughts about this, because I, I think there was a consensus that Draghi was going to announce something at the Thursday meeting as of uh, last week, before the Swiss National Bank. I think that basically now Draghi is committed to this, because the markets have now priced in a type of rebound rally on the idea that the, European, that the Eurozone is going into stimulus mode. Now the markets have priced that in. If he doesn't announce tomorrow, there will be, I, I think, even more carnage. I mean, we'll see stocks dropping like a rock if he doesn't announce. So I think he now has a gun to his head, basically making him announce uh, was the plan, original game plan or not. There are some people who are speculating that that announcement wasn't going to come until later this year. So, so now it looks like he's kind of backed into a corner. Or so He has to make an announcement. I'll give yeah, you that. Exactly. I, I would agree he's got to make an announcement. But does he announce 500 billion euros? Does he announce 700 billion euros? And he does he announce it basically all at once? Give it to you all at once? Or does he drag it out? Fifty billion a month. By ten yeah, months, in, in this twelve case, months, whatever. I mean, the devil is in the details with this one mm -hmm. for, for sure. I mean, it's not even just the number itself. It's uh, as I say, how it's structured and which banks will be expected to kick in what and in what what manner and over what period of time and what will be the out points. I mean, will it be a QE infinity where they say it's tied to the unemployment? Or will it be some specific target for specific numbers and specific dates? I mean, there's so many different variables here that can all be triggered, so that no matter what is announced in terms of 
their real objective? What's Draghi's real objective? Now, I know he's going to say that he wants, I believe he's going to say that he wants to create inflation. They want to avoid deflation. They want to thereby stimulate the European economy. Those are the reasons that are publicized. But is it possible that they also want inflation not simply to stimulate the economy, but to wipe out part of whatever debt is owed by major institutions and governments? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's an element of that. Certainly it works better yeah. for those uh, debtor uh -huh. nations. But, I mean, I don't, I, I, I think that there, from, from a perspective where we imagine that our central bankers are really doing what they say they're doing and the economy really functions like they say it functions, I mean, there is a value to the idea of trying to kickstart some inflation where you're starting to go into a time of deflation because a healthy economy will be expanding and hopefully at just enough of a rate that it will just uh, sort of outstrip the, the what the, 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 the sort of base of the economy wants so that the economy can continue growing. I mean, that's the idea that we're that's going to grow the economy. That's the theory, but yeah. you know, will that work forever or is there a limit that's built in that you're going to encounter sooner or later. Where you say, lately Yeah, I know. There's the problem. And are we there? Or nearly there? Well, I, I think the, the answer to that has to come in the fact that the, these keep getting bigger and more important and more hands on them. And the consequences are greater when there are market disturbances, like what the S&D did last month or last week. I mean, that's, I think, a sign. I mean, the volatility itself and the amount that of the, the all stimulus that's being talked about is a sign that there is something extremely wrong in the underlying picture of what's going on, to the point where now, of course, we, we expect tri uh, stimulus in the hundreds of billions, if not trillion-dollar level, which, I mean, let's cast our minds back. Even a few years ago, even a decade ago, these types of numbers were, I mean, staggering, mind-boggling. I mean, we've become very much inside which just goes to show that they just have to keep increasing the scope of the game in order to keep the... Okay, well, the addicts are stable. The, the addicts need a bigger fix, an ever bigger fix, in order to sustain their addiction. We're all addicted to this fiat currency right now, or at least the governments are, and a debt-based monetary system. And the only way this continues, they got to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. Uh, again, it's like a crack addict needs, you know, bigger hit, bigger hit, bigger hit. You get to a point where you've got to have more and more and more. This, there's an end to this. There's an article from Bloomberg. Thanks, battle speculation. Denmark's Europeg at risk. Now, this is interesting because just three or four days before the Swiss National Bank unpegged the Swiss currency from the euro, the head of the Swiss National Bank assured the world but there were absolutely no plans to do so. Later he explained that the decoupling had to be a surprise. Big surprise for a bunch of different reasons, but he couldn't tell anybody. That's his explanation of this. Now, what's interesting is in the last just couple of days, we've had 12 denials. It was maybe Monday this week. By the National Bank of Denmark, or at least Denmark. Well, I won't say National Bank. Danish Prince. Uh, no, no, no. Denmark. That's all I'm going to say. They have denied the 
that they're going to decouple Danish chrome from the euro. But the uh, Denmark protest too much. A little bit like a takeoff on Hamlet. You know, I think the thinks the lady does protest too much. He thinks Denmark does protest too much. Are they going to suddenly say, that's it, we're out of here? They're the last currency to take to the euro, if I understand correctly. Yeah, well, it's absolutely possible. Um, I don't think we can take too much away from denials like that because they're waste and they don't really tell us much. If they are planning it, then yes. Serious, then they say, no, we're not. So I, I don't know if we can take anything away from a statement like that. But yeah, but it is there it's like again Agatha Christie and then there were none. Yeah. This is one exactly. of this is one I of those dramas the where they're the last one right now that's pegged to the Euro and it seems inevitable that they're gonna break loose. And I don't know how significant that'll be. Switzerland has a lot more psychological effect. People we associate Switzerland with money. People have done that for centuries. Certainly we have throughout your lifetime and mine. You want to get a Swiss bank account, Swiss deal with gold, so on. They're, they're, they're money-oriented. Denmark uh, does carry the same psychological effect, but you can't help but wonder. Denmark de-pegs, decouples their peg from euro. So are we going to see another episode, something like the Swiss National Bank? And we've only got about 15 seconds for you to answer. Seconds or less, I would say that yes, you're right. I mean, Switzerland is a safe haven for banking, for uh, gold, for investment. So that's more important in economically speaking. But Denmark, you're right. I mean, it is important as the last. So is uh, well, extremely precarious at the very least. I agree. We'll give you five more seconds. What's going to happen to the euro? Is this going to survive? And if it does, will the European Union survive? I hope not, but uh, but I, I we'll see so much tomorrow what's going to happen, and I'll be writing about mm -hmm. it in the forecast for this weekend. All right, uh, James, thanks for being on the program. This is James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. James will be back next Wednesday evening, and we will talk to you at that time. Thank you, James. I'm Al Perdatis. This is Financial Survival. Be back manana.
Now, well, that's a little better. I'm having one of those lines too with my fan on my computer. My fan on my computer, so please, I'm sorry about it, but I can't do a thing. I keep thing on my tower and it doesn't work, so I need a new one. Hello. Um. Okay. So Arkansas, these uh, these children of this homeschooling family. I believe the dad's a pastor. They have been. State, and uh, they they were one thing that a complaint I, I read on Yahoo. First, I read the Yahoo article, and the Yahoo article didn't tell hardly anything. the The name of that one was uh, Seven Children Removed from Home Over Mineral Supplement," and. I believe it was posted the 20th of this year, so of January. And so I read that one first. It didn't give much information compared to the second article I read, but they did say in that first article that uh, the name of the, the family is Hal and Michelle Stanley, the parents, and it said uh, uh, authorities in Arkansas reportedly removed seven children from their home last week after an anonymous caller notified police that the kids were running barefoot in the snow. When officers arrived at the home without, with a warrant, they searched the premises and found a mineral supplement, MMS, or, mini, or Mineral Miracle Solution, which has been cited for various dangers by the Food and Drug Administration and took the children into custody. And uh, so that's what they were saying in the second article I read. Uh, and I've read other things about it that have said that on, like, I don't remember where it was, online somewhere you know, in the past. But, um, well, there's been, there's been people on uh, yeah. ABR about MMS. And, right. And, you know, i, I got to say I'm not on board with it. Uh, you know, but I'm not either. You know, people but, have to try out their own things. And, yeah. You know, and, and there are people out there who say, "Well, I've had great, you know, I've had great success with it." Yeah. So, you know, that's good for them, and maybe they have. Right. You know, uh, but I'm, I, everything I've looked at, I'm not. I will not. Promote I will not. I will not take it myself or recommend it for no, anybody I else. Promote myself. It, but, you know. know. Hey, I do promote people to do your own research. Yeah. Figure out what you want to do. Try it. And, you know, careful. Well, it turns out this family are so-called preppers, and they put in parentheses on <laughs> Yahoo, end-of-world survivalists, okay? 
and have homeschooled children, there are nine children, two of which are grown and live outside the home. And the dad, Hal, has noted that he occasionally uses MMS, a legal substance that's not FDA approved. He calls as a supplement it doesn't need to be, mostly for purifying their garden water. He says the children have never used a supplement regarding the kids going outside without shoes. It was snowing, apparently, and they have, according to the family, uh, a tradition of running outside quickly, briefly in the snow, and taking pictures of the footprint. Hey, oh, man, I guess everything so, in Scandinavia needs to be uh, taken away from their parents. Yeah, I actually, you know, Googled that before the show, and apparently it's, you know, a lot of people do that kind of thing. So I've never done it, but, I mean, you know. Well, I, so I, I, they, they're claiming that somebody turned them in basically for seeing their children running in the snow, but then how did they know they had this MMS in their home? You know what I mean? So it seems more like somebody was in their home and saw or heard or maybe they found out, maybe they talked about MMS to somebody else, a neighbor or somebody, I don't know. But so then, see, do you see why yeah, I keep don't the gate talk to people. <laughs> you see why I keep the gate locked? Yeah. I gotta talk to. I talk to you over the gate. If I don't know you really well, yeah, you're not coming in here. Well, and the second article is a. If you want to read more about it, you know, the one I found was from the headline. You can look for it. Homeschooled children seized by authorities still in state custody from onenewsnow.com. And so it said, it gives a lot more information. And, uh, you know, they showed the the DHS 200 and something pair of shoes and told her, actually the kids told her how it was their preference to go barefoot and that it was like a tradition to briefly run out in the snow barefoot and take a picture of the footprints and the, it says here Stanley, whoever, whichever parent, explained that to the investigator last month. Then round two of the assault on her parental rights, I guess it was the mom, began when a DHS agent and sheriff's deputies, Department of Homeland Security agents, and sheriff's deputies returned to the Stanley's home on Monday, January 12th. Uh, several people showed up at our door, she said, all obviously here for the investigation, and we welcomed them in. The homeschooling mother recounted, according to World Net Daily, I have not read their article. However, they desired us to step outside their home in order to speak privately with Hal, her husband, and I, and not in front of the kids. That's the excuse they gave anyway, right? It was a total lie. So Garland County, Arkansas is where this happened apparently. This did not sit well with the officers because they preferred for the officers to come in their home. And the agent of the state from the Department of Homeland Security who refused to let the parents remain in their home. I tried to tell them it was much warmer inside and that it was nothing for the kids to go to the back of the house for us to have privacy talking to concern mother shared. They refused and insisted on us stepping outside. Then, she shares, it became apparent what was happening as the state began to seize control of their home and soon their children. After stepping outside, they issued us a search warrant and said we could not enter our house or talk to our kids until the search and the investigation was through, Michelle Stanley said. They said the charge was that we had a poisonous substance in our house and that the kids were being exposed to it, and it endangered their welfare. He insisted that the issue with the poison was absurd. The suspected substance was actually reported to be MMS. You know, they could say that about any Bleach. home. 
Yeah. A furniture polish, detergent, whatever. That's right. But that was the excuse they used. So, um, you know, she says that the product used to purify water has been used in Africa by the Red Cross to treat malaria, according to Health Impact News. Even though the family stated that they used the water on their garden, the house raid and seizure of the children persisted. Never has it been used in any way to poison our kids or even expose them in such a way as to endanger their lives, she, um, can she you said. Get to the part where they sue these people? Well, um, it says here, you know, they, they're kept outside of their home. Uh, it says the anonymous caller raised suspicions, noting that the rare products appeared in the home of a Christian homeschooling family that was led by a father who is a pastor. Sounds like to me a lot of that. You know, had an impact on them going. Why they targeted? Yeah, exactly. So they were kept outside of the home in freezing winter conditions while being interrogated and served with the search warrant for five hours. They continued to search the house while their children were being held inside with these people without parental supervision. Six intimidating, brute-looking males and one DHS female all lined up in our den to tell us they would be taking our kids into their custody for 72 hours. Those three days have long passed. It's been more than a week now. The children have been in custody of the state. I've read that they are now in public school. They've enrolled them in public school. And they've asked who made the complaint, and they said that they do not have to tell them. They will not tell them. They're anonymous. It could be, they said it could be a hateful neighbor, a prank caller, someone with malicious intent, and still they would have to act on the call. Now, there's a site called Medical Kidnap, and I think it's medicalkidnap.com, but you could look. I haven't been there yet, so you might want to check it out. And, you know, they said the same thing. Anybody could have dangerous, and they all pretty much do. Most people do have dangerous chemicals in their house, like Drano, bleach, toilet bowl cleaner, Tylenol, whatever. Well, think you know of all the you know what I think? drugs. Okay, I've got an idea because, you know, this is going to cost them a lot of time suffering money. I have an idea, folks. If it's true that, well, they have to investigate anything, then I think we should all call DHS and the Children's Services and report dangerous substances. Go find your state representative and your congressman's name and house and address and go report them if they have any children that they have dangerous substances in their house and let your elected officials, you know, feel your pain. Uh, your city councilmen, your your uh, your uh, county commissioners, your sheriff deputies, and officers, if you know where they live, uh, start calling DHS on these guys. Start saying, hey, man, if they got dangerous chemicals in their house that they're exposing their children to, now you're obligated, remember, you said right here, you're obligated to check it out. Out. And then maybe they'll stop all this crap once it starts happening to them. Somebody made a comment that let this happen to the people that did this to these people. Like hey. let their kids be taken away. Let their house be invaded like this and see how they like it. Hey, that's exactly what I said. And and folks, we can make that happen. I don't believe them for a minute that they're telling the truth about, oh, we have to investigate. They have a Go, I think it's a GoFundMe account, too, if anybody wants to check that out. You know, I don't know much about it, but the name of the family is Hal 
Stanley is the dad's name, and you might, you know, look for it if you want to. And they're trying to raise money for legal funds and all that kind of stuff. So it's in Arkansas, Garland County, Arkansas. Well, oh, you know, Arkansas is one of the most corrupt states in the U.S. Two of their former governors went to prison. Then you have Bill Clinton, yeah. the one after him, and then you, the one after him was Guy Tucker went to prison. Then you had Huckabee who burned yeah, every heart exactly. before he left because uh, he was trying to keep kids is the kid that likes to throw dogs or something. Off the cliff, cliff. yeah. Exactly. You know, so Arkansas has got a lot of freaks that run their government down. Probably nice people. Kiddo boys. But... Man, their government is corrupt. Yeah. You know, so I'm not so surprised this happens in a place like this. And and it's true, though. Some places, and, and this could happen anywhere, folks. I understand that. But some places are actually worse than others. Right. Like, uh, where was that? I'm trying to think. Or was it where they shot that homeless person in the woods? Uh, and, New Mexico. Yeah, New Mexico. They have, like, terrible... Terrible, you know, law enforcement corruption yeah. there, the cops and stuff, it seems. At least in that one town that I've been reporting on lately and in the past. So, yeah, pray for this family, you know. Al and Michelle Stanley in, in Arkansas. Garrison, oh, I'm sorry, Garland County, Arkansas. Yeah. And their kids. Kids and their parents. Well, you know, I, I hope the people down there, I hope they have some support where they can act. I read that there's an, a, there's some kind of home school league defense association, too. And somebody suggested that, they you know, that's a good thing to join because while the current U.S. government does ignore the law, in some cases there's still some semblance of rule of law for, for you know, help in cases like this. I don't know anything about that group. Well, there's, but. you know, there is a law. There are laws, and if you follow the laws, it doesn't mean the government's going to recognize that. But, you know, if you, pa- you know, it's... Most homeschoolers, they go, okay, what do I need to do? And they spend most of their effort, as they should, on what they're teaching their kids. You know, they focus their energy on what they're teaching their kids, not, okay, let's learn the law, let's learn court procedure, let's learn what we can do if the government comes and causes us trouble. And, Junior, here's a book, a comic book, good luck. You know, I mean, they, you know, they, they're doing the right thing by focusing on their kids. So when you do that, you know, you've got to find somebody who, and a group, hey, the more the better. The more people you can get behind you, the better, you know. You know, if I was a homeschooler, I would try to find the homeschoolers in my area, and I would group together. Apparently, this is a family on Facebook because they had pictures from their Facebook page, too. So, uh, Well, uh, you know what? And that's, that's something else. If you are a homeschooler, I understand you're not doing anything wrong. As a matter of fact, you're doing something right. But you better understand where you live. You better understand what the environment is like in this country today. You can sit there and squawk about the Constitution and rights, and this is America, and by God, we're free here, and all this. But that's not the truth. 
of the matter about where we're at today in 2015 in this country. The fact of the matter is we've been overrun by communists, and they don't like this homeschooling idea because you're not indoctrinating your kids into their system. You're not getting them to drugs. You're not dumbing them down, and they don't like it. And they'll do anything they can to stop you, including break the law. Now, it's a bad idea to put all your stuff on fed books. Right. Oh, look, look what we're doing. Oh, hey, look, Junior just got 100% on his spelling bee. That's the kind of stuff that drives these people crazy and want to take your kids away and drug them up and stick them in this stupid school uh, so they never pass another test in their life. They don't like taking For all we know, they could have just good. seen them on, on fed books, like you say, and targeted them over that. Who knows? It could have been somebody at the agency, Department of Homeland Security, whatever. They can look on fed books. They can target you and say, we want to do find something on this. They can go to yeah. your PayPal account, Steve, and you MMS, yeah, and they can tie it together and say, "Well, you man, your he's a they're Christians, and he's a pastor, and they homeschool." And you I'm know? sure that was all on. Their and have a lot of I'm kids. Sure that was all on their fed book. Okay. Now, and the thing is, you do that once they start looking at you, they can find out if you order that. Right. You know, exactly. and then they can come and target you for that and say, well, you've got a poisonous uh, thing here. Why huh. don't they say, well, hey, you got Drano under here. Today. Yeah, it says capable as being, a substance capable of being turned into bleach during the telecast on KARK broadcast on the local Arkansas television station. You know. Capable of being I mean, hello, bleach. they sell bleach yeah. everywhere. People have it in their homes anyway. Bleach right here Who's to say you're not putting that in your kids' water? You know what I mean? And people, people do. People do purify their water with bleach. You want, you and hydrogen peroxide. You can go down. Any, you can go down to any restaurant here in Medford, Oregon. Uh, yeah, the water's and treated with smell it. Smell the bleach That's in the clean. water. You, okay. you told me to smell my yeah. drink when we were out one time. That you could smell the bleach in it. So. You know, if it's that dangerous and it's not allowed, well, for one thing, bleach causes cancer. You know, so does the fluoride in the water. Yet they're pouring that into all of our water and into the toothpaste, the fluoride. And look at the GMOs and all the other nonsense, the chemtrails, and they're worried about this NMS, you know, and the kids aren't being given it anyway from what it looks like. So it's just, you know. So they don't care what the parents say. They wanted those kids out of that house because they're being homeschooled by Christians. Yeah, exactly. And that's the bottom line. So maybe they're get them in foster care and get them molested. Well, there's a bunch of Satanists, obviously, in that local government and those local offices. You know, there's going to come a day when people like that just need to be taken out. Here right now. You know, I still encourage people to uh, get together with other folks, and uh, there's, you know, there's. But if they keep it up, there's going to come a day when it's like, okay, look, I'm getting a good look at you. I'm going to find out where you're at because you come and start messing with my kids. Don't be surprised and don't be outraged by that statement, folks. One of you out there with kids ought to feel the same way. I don't even have kids, and I feel that way. Argue to allow this to go on and not and not say no, no. You know what? This this is the line here. This is the line where if you cross it, I kill you. You know because you might say, oh my gosh, that's over the edge. No, it's not over the edge. It's got to be that line, or else you might as well just you know 
Kiss your children goodbye. Well, people that have their children in public school have already kissed them goodbye anyway, pretty much. And the same thing, the 501c3 churches and giving them to the Sunday schools for that, you know, and they're not even watching them while they're in there. So, yeah, it's just, it's sad. It is sad. But we're going to take a break, and we are going to play Stump the Room. And so you got to be in the chat room to do it, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. I think I have some good choices. Good luck.
Few things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. And our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes. And the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 541- Two two five four six five nine. That's five four one two two five four six five nine. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulphur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
start just playing music I like. Thanks. I look for obscure things. Believe me, some obscure things. But Rory Gallagher, if you look him up, uh, folks, it's an interesting, it's an interesting guitar player. Know who Rory Gallagher is, and they recognize that lot of other huge, huge guitar players point to Rory Gallagher as a man. Just like I said earlier, uh, you know, doing show when I played Alan, uh, Alvin Lee, you know, anybody who you consider a shredder, Alvin Lee was the first. Shredder. All the shredders look to him. And now, that doesn't mean they stole their style from Alan Alvin Lee, but they got the idea to play really fast like he did. So there's there's some people that aren't as well-known as a lot of people that you think are, oh, you well, he's the best. But these guys are the guys that the best think are the best. Anyhow, it is Wednesday. We'll bring Melissa. Welcome back, Melissa. Thank you. (laughs) 
know you went and looked it up. I promise I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't even at my keyboard the whole time. Very I guessed like four or five different bands and and singers. And have you ever played um, Rory Gallagher before? Not these songs. Have you played Alvin Lee before? Have you played Ten Years After before? I didn't play them. Okay, and those are ones that I guessed because I guessed really good bands. I don't and it because it's oh, every time I get one right, which is quite frequently, you say I cheated. So I guess it's just a girl problem. No, it's the problem that when I uh, started it, you said, uh, be right back, and then you came back. And yeah, I went away from keyboard to, you came back and to go right. to the bathroom. If you'd like to put a camera in down here, you could have seen that. But anyway. Maybe a key logger would be better. But anyway. I didn't cheat, I promise. No prizes. I don't need to cheat. When I look it up, I tell you in the room I looked it up, and I'm not even guessing because I already know who it is if I do look it up. But I guessed several bands, and I happened to get one right. Then I said, oh, I got it right. Which one was it? I didn't even know still. Blah, blah, blah. Sore loser, sore loser. E-man, woman-hating group. K-boy. Yep, New England Patriots of Stump the Room. There you go. I think we have a caller. Do you? Mm-hmm. How did you know that? It's probably one of your He-Man buddies. No. <laughs> no. Anyway, go ahead, caller. Uh, this is John from Texas. How's it going, Frank? Hey, John from Texas. How are you? Oh, no, thank you. I just wanted to give some a uh, little bit of let me a little bit about sorry on air nervousness. I just want to give some confidence to your listeners. I got a freshman daughter. She's in public school in uh, Southern Texas, and uh, over the uh, Christmas holiday, she was assigned a book, and I decided to start reading it with her. Uh-oh. And I got to page uh, I got to page 104. Now, keep in mind she's a uh, advanced placement student, best of the best, straight A student. Yeah. In a class where there's about 30 kids that are uh, just as smart as her. And John, uh, yeah. what you know, class? John, what class was this that they assigned this book to? What, what was uh, English? This was so. Yes, uh, yes. That's what it is. It's English. Okay. They call it something else. They call it something else, and literature I mean, renamed the subject. Okay. It renamed the subject like twenty times already, so it's hard to follow it. But it's it's basically English. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read what they wrote. There's no profanity here, but uh, this is what's in the book for a freshman kid. Our composition teacher yelled, "Stop! Stop!" Then he called Ahmed every animal name except the cow before throwing them out of class. Last year, our composition teacher was caught in the bathroom with his pants down, and a 15-year-old kid bent over in front of him. He immediately was reassigned to a school in another district. That day, Mr. Gorgie told us that homosexuality is born of lack of faith. If you believe in God, then you don't desire anal sex. Mr. Moratti said that homosexuality results in a lack of discipline and the respect for the rule that prohibits men's 
seeking. And it just goes on and on. Then there's masturbation talk and all this what, what, is the, what, is the and, name, and what is the name of this book? The name of the book is called Rooftops of Tehran. And, you know, I should have known better just by the name because I saw it a few days prior. And, uh, I, 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 you know, I just decided to pick up, unfortunately, a little bit too late. That, that particular excerpt is on page 104, and she was already in the 200s. And, um, you know, I had a long talk with her about how the school districts like to brainwash little kids and turn their minds into mush. And, you know, they target the smartest kids because they want to keep everybody stupid. And she's on the same page as I am. She apologized for not telling me. It won't happen again. I immediately, when school resumed, I called the principal and then decided, you know what, you're not the guy I need to talk to because she, he wanted to set up a meeting with the teacher. And I'm like, no, 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 this needs to go higher than this. So I hung up on him while in mid-sentence, and I called the superintendent's office. And I threatened the superintendent with a lawsuit and going straight to the media because, you know, I live in a pretty big – I live in a really big city, and there's a lot of libs, and this is a Democrat-controlled city. But for the most part, people still have a little bit of morality here. And it, it doesn't it, – it, it just doesn't jive. I'm not in – I'm not in freaking San Francisco, you know. I mean, this, this is still Texas, you know. There's still some prideful people here. Well, what happened was that she said that uh, she was going to get to the bottom of it, and I said, you know what, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you the page numbers. Give me your email. I, need a, I emailed her all this info, and she called me back a few days later explaining that the teachers haven't read the book, and I stopped her right there, and I what? said, well, what the heck are you doing passing out the books if the teachers – haven't read the books that they're passing out. What if little Johnny had a, I'm sorry, what if little Jose had a question for the teacher about the book? How is the teacher supposed to answer the question if they, if they haven't read it? Common sense, you know? And I said, that's not good enough. We need to take this a little bit further. And I'm going to contact every single parent. And by the way, I am staying anonymous. I am not giving you my name. You're not going to know which kid it is that I have. Uh, in that class, and I'm going to make sure I contact every parent and present to them the same evidence I just gave you. And we're going to see what it's like to have 30 screaming sets of parents at your office one day. And you know what? We're also going to call, I'll also even call the media and make it a big media event. You know, maybe Fox News would like to hear this. Oh, yeah. Put something something positive on the news for a change, you know? And the lady's like, sir, you need to calm World down. World's not daily, I'm sir. I'm going to, I told her, I, I, I said to her, or she said to me that, first of all, we're going to have an evaluation with other teachers. We're going to find out if this is material that, that is uh, offensive. And I said, well, you know what, ma'am? Do you have any kids? And she said, I sure do. I said, what are their ages? She said, I've got a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old. I said, I'll tell you what, why don't you put them on the phone and let me read that little excerpt that I just read you, ma'am, and see see how your kids cringe when they hear that. So, are you still there? Yep. Yep. Okay. And and the lady's like, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. And I said, (laughs) but it's okay for you to brainwash my child with this filth, you know? So she called me back about two days later, and she was about up with the time because I was going to call. I was going to make all that those threats happen the very next day. 
but I get some sick sense kicked into her head. What she did was she told me, I've got an apology letter that's on, in the, on the way in the mail to every single uh, parent that's in that class, uh, the, of the children that are in that class. An apology letter, the book has been shelved, it's, it, it's never going to be reissued again. Every teacher is going to be required to read the book before handing out future books. And if there's anything that's questionable materials, they're going to send a letter of, uh, like a permission slip that Jose can read the book. Well, I so think I think I the best thing of, the best thing out of that whole thing is that those teachers are required to read anything that they pass out for reading. Well, you, you know, they kept saying. They, I mean, the lady kept telling me there might be a possible reason because since they're in advanced placement class, that they might be receiving college material. And I'm like, well, you know, this is a freshman high school grade. This this is and plus what college. Do I not send my kid to? Can you yeah. tell me which college is going to hand up that book? Yeah, because <laughs> and plus, you know, from what I, I mean, okay. Now, I think the content was inappropriate, but if you think about it and read it again and read it, you know, get by what it's actually saying. Level is written on that is not written at a college level. No, no. Well, maybe to today's college level, too. <laughs> well, in that case, it's yeah, seventh I, I, grade. Look, I got, I got, I got. In that case, it's first seventh grade level because that is what well, the study friend. found out that the college freshman going in, your average college freshman reads at a seventh grade level now. Yeah, I, I understand. You see, Frank, I have to play total anon- anonymity here because I don't want right, so the chances that job. my kids. Yeah, I don't want to target. And my wife is actually just started a substitute as a substitute school de- de- uh, substitute teacher for the same school district, and I didn't want any uh, blacklisting going on there. Right. So my wife, every single day she comes home, and she wants to immediately go to sleep because of all the filthy, dirty, nasty kids in their mouths and their attitudes, and they can't even add. You know, cursive writing isn't even taught in public school anymore. Well, I'm not I sure if you know that. I knew but that. I, yeah. I, I told this is what I told the superintendent. I said, "You have time. Your teachers have time." Or, or wait a minute. I said, "Your teachers, you know, they've got time to be passing out this filth, but they don't have enough time to teach our kids, you know, the way the Constitution was written." Is that the goal here? Is is it in ten years for all these future kids that are being, you know, that are being raised that they cannot read the Constitution and, and it's an, you know, and it's originality? Is, is that the goal here, ma'am? What is the deal with the curse of writing? And she said, "We're trying to go back uh, old school," is what she said. We're making changes, and in the next year or two, we're going to bring back curse of writing uh, in our curriculum. And I'm like, well, well that, that's just great. You know, uh, sure. what's that going to do for my kid that, that's a junior right now? Yeah. Well, you now, know, the I've thing is, I think, I think they're sorry. getting a lot yeah, of I mean, I, I think I think they're getting a lot of backlash. I, I, think, I think they are getting a lot of backlash from parents just like you who are, uh, you know, tired of this and tired of the curriculum, and they want their, they want their kids to actually learn something. Yeah. Well, you know? So, have, so have they sent that letter out yet? Today, 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 that, the letter has not come yet. 
and that superintendent told me, if you have not received the letter within a week, make sure you call me back, and I'll get to the bottom of it. You know, and I'm like, okay, I sure will. So it, 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 it's been a little bit over a week. I'm kind of given a day or two. And uh, if that doesn't happen, then I'm just going to go ahead and pull the trigger and uh, go straight to the parents and let them know. Because if she can't keep her word about sending a letter, then what the heck is, you know, what, what's to say she, the teachers are going to read the books and all these promises that she made. You know, she can't even send a freaking letter. So, you know, but, but look, I started something there at the school. I notified a couple other parents. I didn't get all 30 of the kids' parents involved yet, but a couple of them are aware of it. They're on standby. They are furious. And, you know, for all your listeners who think it's not possible to make change, you can make change. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be proof of that once I get that letter. I'll call back to the show, and I'll do a follow-up call. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That, that'd, that'd be a great call. But you know what else? It does take people to actually do it. I think it'd be good to band together with the other parents and go to the media nonetheless, you know, even if they did write the apology and all that nonsense, you know, so that people out you know, there can the, the, you know, know what's going I, on. I, I, my, my, I don't mean to interrupt here, but, you know, I'm in a, my, we're in a school district where, you know, I'm the gringo and I'm the minority. So, you know, it, it, it's kind of a strange situation because, a lot of these books, there's a lot of things I ask about Huckleberry Finn and why don't they read that instead, or classic books, you know, Macbeth, et cetera. Uh, and she's like, well, every parent's going to have some objection to every single book. Uh, with Huckleberry Finn, they use the N-word. Um, Macbeth, there's too much violence. With Romeo and Juliet, there's too much sexual content. And I said, you know, stop there. Why don't you read page 104? Listen to what my words were. A teacher bent over a student in the restroom, right. a, a male in a male. What is that? So that's okay, but Romeo and Juliet, the normalcy? You know, How are these books normal? okay? That's who decides on the curriculum? I, you know, who decides? Who some, reads the books? Some, some advanced placement board. And I am, I, I, well, you know, I got to work no, over a little. We're out. We're, we're and, just. And I, I, we're just about out of time, John, and, and I do want you to definitely call back when you get the letter because I'd be interested to hear what it says. And the fact of the matter is you and the other parents, whether they're, you know, uh, of Latino descent or whatever, need to, if you can, and they I don't know where you live, but here they have school board meetings at in the evening. And, you know, you don't have to have an issue necessarily, but to show up in mass, 20 or 30 parents yeah. showing up at this school board meeting, they're used to having two or three people. And lay it on the line. You know, when when 20 or 30 people show up, you don't even have to say a word. You might you, get media you attention just, anywhere. You just, sit, you just sit there and watch them. They'll get the message. Then they yeah, target they your wife, and you've got, you know, all this media there showing that if they fire your wife over it or something, you know, you've got a lawsuit on your Well, hands. and that's the thing about, you know, a lot of these parents, maybe they don't speak that good of English. Maybe they're not that educated. Maybe they feel that, well, I can't, I can't get up and say anything meaningful to these educated people. And maybe that's true, but they don't have to say anything. Right. Everybody doesn't have to say something, but everybody has to be there. Can't they you're give a, their time up to him? You're a body in the seat. 
and if you're a body in the seat, none of you really have to say anything all the time. I would write down what I there. want to say You can just him. sit there and look at them. Mm-hmm. They'll get the message. You know, you know, Frank, Frank, pissed off people in the masses really scare politicians. Yeah, they that's do. That's what these people are. And you don't so. have to even say anything. Just sit there and stare them so. down. Like, you know what? We're here and we're watching you. And yeah. you'll see a lot of well, things. Thanks, man. I, I, no, thank you for calling I in and standing up and all that. I, I, I hope I make a difference in some kid's life, you know, by doing this, not just mine, you know, the book the show. And I hope some, I hope this touches one of your listeners. Sorry about my nervousness on the air, but I think you all got the message, John. We did, and we appreciated John, but we got to go, and thanks for calling. Call back thanks, when you sir. get that Have letter. Every anyway. call from him is always great, John, from Texas. Well, that, to me, hey, to me that is encouraging, and it should tell people that, hey, you know what? Do that. You know, you I hope it does get publicity. I think it would go around the world, this story. Well, I, it, it should wake parents up to say, hey, wait a minute. I, I, maybe I need to look and see what my kids are reading from school. And if the teachers aren't reading it, uh, there's a real problem with that. Anyway, maybe you have to put that out. You know. We gotta go, and we'll be back again. I'll be back again tomorrow. Melissa will be back again next Wednesday. Thanks for being on, Melissa. Thank you. Everybody, thanks for listening as always. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19, 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific. Few things in this world are more important than clean, pure water. Understanding this, ABR makes four tabletop water distillers available to you for purchase. First, we have the five and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $139. The second is a five and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $189. The third is a three and a half hour per gallon with polycarbonate collection jug for $189. 
$1,000, and our premier tabletop distiller is a three and a half hour per gallon with glass collection jug for $250. All our distillers have a stainless steel boiling pot, dome, and cooling tubes, and the premier version also has a splash flap to protect against contamination of the cooling tubes. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com for more information and protect your water supply. And I still, to this day, Council, don't see anything wrong with taking the Ayatollah's money and sending it to support the Nicaraguan freedom fighters. They have basically said to the entire United States, we don't care what the people say, we don't care what the Congress says, we don't care what the other oversight organizations say, we're going to find some way to rid the planet of communism, and we don't care who gets killed in the process. As long as there is breath in this body... I will speak and work, strive and struggle for the cause of the Nicaraguan freedom fighters. Freedom fighters, they are not. They are terrorists. Wait a minute. This isn't the way the Constitution was set up. This isn't what the Founding Fathers intended. We start out breaking foreign laws, since most countries have laws against secretly overthrowing their governments. And then you end up breaking the law at home. Sometimes you have to go above the written law. They were willing to literally put the Constitution at risk uh, because they believed somehow there was a higher order of things. We have liberty, and the only way we're going to keep liberty is to have people who are strong, like Reagan and North. Violence is not the answer. Uh, you don't teach the democratic way by shoving an M-16 down somebody's throat. If we continue these policies to rob ourselves in order to feed this national security monster, we are going to continue to degrade American life. We're only talking about subverting the Constitution, that's all. During this 200th anniversary of our Constitution, Americans are debating the document's meaning. It's a debate about war and peace, freedom and justice, and it's heard from the Capitol down to Main Street, and in this song by pop singer Jackson Brown. I've been waiting for something to happen For a week or a month or a year with the blood in the ink of the headlines And the sound of the crowd in my ears You might ask what it takes to remember When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is ripped in the war There's a shadow on the face of the man On the radio, talk show, TV, you hear one thing again and again. How the USA stands for freedom, and we come to the aid of a friend. But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments are killing their own, or the people who finally can't take anymore. And they pick up a gun, or a brick, or a stone, and they're alive in the balance. Jackson Brown sings about his history, past and present. I'm Bill Moyers, and in this personal essay, we'll look at that government in the shadows, 
Next week, Congress will publish a report on the Iran-Contra scandal. My colleagues and I have been investigating it ourselves. In this broadcast, we'll look at what we learned about the secret government in the hearings this summer, the wars and tragedies that have been a part of it for 40 years, and where it will take us if we, the people, let it. how Americans like to think of their government. Its values are enshrined in beautiful monuments and noble inscriptions, the temples of our national faith. But for 40 years, a secret government has been growing behind these stately tributes to American ideals, growing like a cancer on the Constitution. It's what people were talking about this summer. They were talking about the abuse of secret power, a breach of faith. Not everybody told the truth. <laughs> Not everybody thinks the public is entitled to know the truth, and uh, not everybody thinks they should go by the law. But I don't think we'll ever know the truth about what really happened. I mean, I feel like there's still lies out there, and we still don't know. The thing I started thinking was, this must happen all the time. This time they just got caught. People lined up early every day, waiting to listen in person to the Iran-Contra hearings, while millions watched from home on television. Members of the secret government have been forced from the shadows into the spotlight. I will tell you right now, Council, and all the members here gathered, that I misled the Congress. I misled at that meeting. At that meeting. Face to face. Face to face. You made false statements to them about your activities in support of the Congress. I did. Oliver North had been the secret government's chronic liar, long on zeal for his president and the cause. But he was not the only zealot, not the only one to deceive. The hearings revealed a wholesale policy of secrecy shrouded in lies, of passion cloaked in fiction and deception. But the hearings told only part of the story. So let's begin on day one. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will... President Reagan came to office promising to restore America's military and moral prestige in the world. Voters had responded when he pledged to be tough on terrorists, a vow he repeated time and again. Let me further make it plain that the assassins in Beirut and their accomplices, wherever they may be, that America will never make concessions to terrorists. That's what the president kept saying, but it's not what he was doing. The story broke one year ago, on November 3, 1986, in a magazine in Lebanon. The United States had defied its own embargo on arms to Iran. Ronald Reagan was offering weapons to the Ayatollah Khomeini in return for the release of American hostages. The president went on television to deny it. The charge has been made that the United States has shipped weapons to Iran as ransom payment for the release of American hostages in Lebanon that the United States undercut its allies and secretly violated American policy against trafficking with terrorists. Those charges are utterly false. The president was not telling the truth. And when he held a news conference the next week, the pattern of deception continued. Mr. President, I don't think it's still clear just what Israel's role was in this. Could you explain what the Israeli role was here? 
No, because we, as I say, have had nothing to do with other countries or their shipment of arms or doing what they're, they're doing. That wasn't the truth either. Half an hour later, the White House press office corrected the president. Israel had been a key player in the sale of arms to Iran. Rapidly now, the web of secrets was unraveling. On November 25th, the president's old friend and ally, Attorney General Edwin Neese, revealed the deepest secret of all. Certain monies which were received in the transaction between representatives of Israel and representatives of Iran were uh, taken and made available to the forces in Central America which are opposing the Sandinista government there. The Constitution is ambiguous on many things, but not on this. The president, quote, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Yet President Reagan himself approved selling arms to Iran. And as for the illegal diversion of funds to the Contras, well, the president's national security advisor said the decision had been his. I made a very deliberate decision not to ask the president so that I could insulate him from the decision and provide some future deniability for the president if it ever leaked out. But there was no denying that the president's men knew what was in the president's mind. And he had been very adamant at the time that he says, look, I don't want to pull out our support for the Contras for any reason. This, this would be an unacceptable option. Isn't there something that I could do unilaterally? Unilaterally. In other words, By without that. congressional approval. Ronald Reagan's message was clear. Find somewhere, anyway, to help the Contras. So I guess in a way they are counter-revolutionary, and God bless them for being that way. And I guess that makes them Contras, and so it makes me a Contra, too. The Contras. Ronald Reagan compared them to our founding fathers. In reality... Ronald Reagan and CIA Director William Casey were their founding fathers. Two months after his inauguration, the president approved the funds which Casey used to create the Contras. Their ultimate was the violent overthrow of the Nicaraguan government, a government the United States legally recognizes. So the war had to be carried out covertly as a campaign of terror. But Americans were outraged when CIA agents mined the Nicaraguan harbors and blew up fuel tanks, causing thousands of Nicaraguan citizens to flee their homes. Congress, in protest, cut off the Contra funds. When the president refused to give up on his creation, the Contras cheered. But how to keep the Contra war going despite Congress, the law, and public opinion? First, a small cabal in the White House took charge of policy. The president, CIA Director Casey, National Security Advisors McFarlane and Porndexter, and their aide, Colonel North, who did not wear his Marine uniform when he worked for the secret government. To raise money for the Contras, the secret team turned to right-wing governments that could do favors for the United States and receive favors in return. The King of Saudi Arabia doled out a million dollars a month. The Sultan of Brunei coughed up $10 million that was misplaced through a White House error. The secret government also encouraged the fundraising efforts of General John Singlau. Relieved of his command for insubordination in 1977, he now runs the World Anti-Communist League. I represent hundreds of thousands of Americans 
who are sympathetic to your cause and want to help. Here at home, wealthy right-wingers were solicited directly by Oliver North. Some of them were told their contributions would get them invited to the Oval Office. Conservative activist Carl Channel, who later pleaded guilty to conspiracy to defraud the government, worked directly with Colonel North, pumping donors like investor Joseph Aboyle. I take it your encounters involved, invariably involved, both Mr. Channel and Colonel North. Maybe Channel took you to North, and then you met with North, and then subsequently you would meet with Channel. But in a sense, they worked as a team. In a sense, yes. Uh, Mrs. Garwood, is that true in your instance as well? I would say that's a fairly accurate description. All this was being done to advance the president's policies, but it wasn't enough. To get around the law, the White House then enlisted the services of something called the Enterprise. The Enterprise is, is the uh, group of, of companies that uh, Mr. Hakim formed to manage the uh, Contra and the Iranian project. Who controls the enterprise? I exercised overall control. General Richard Secord has been in and out of covert operations for a quarter century. One of the first Americans to fly secret missions in Vietnam, he also helped run the CIA secret war in Laos. Secord became a major Pentagon figure in foreign military sales, especially to the Shah of Iran. That's where he met this man, Albert Hakim. Not only was I presented with an opportunity to help my country, the United States, and my native land, Iran, but at the same time, I had the opportunity to profit financially. Albert Hakim was Secord's partner in the enterprise. Born in Iran, he made millions selling American-made arms to the Shah, often relying on bribes and illegal payoffs to ease the way. Now he handled financial matters for the enterprise. Like any good business, the enterprise was designed to make money. Am I correct, Mr. Secord, that from December 1984 until July 1985, you were engaged in selling arms to the countries for profit? That's correct. Then, at the direct request of the secret White House team, the enterprise brokered American arms to the Ayatollah Khomeini. Beyond Secord and Hakim, it grew to include a shadowy network of arms dealers, fraudulent companies, and secret bank accounts. The enterprise was, as Senator Daniel Inouye put it, a shadowy government with its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of the national interest, free from all checks and balances, and free from the law itself. Here's just one example of how the enterprise worked. With the full knowledge of William Casey and Oliver North, Secord and Hakim controlled secret bank accounts in Switzerland that received those contributions from private citizens. The money was then funneled to the Contras. One donor was Joseph Coors, the millionaire beer tycoon. Coors met directly with Casey, who referred him to North. I told him that I was interested in, um, uh, in seeing what I could do, and I asked him for his recommendation. And did North, uh, subsequent to the meeting, provide you the Swiss bank account name and number to which your payment should be made? Yes, he did. Joseph Coors deposited $65,000 into the secret account, but that was peanuts compared to the arms deals. 
Secord purchased 1,000 missiles from the CIA for $3.7 million and sold them to an Iranian middleman for $10 million. On that one transaction alone, after expenses, the enterprise made a profit of $5.5 million, almost 200%. Its overall profits on the sales to Iran may have been as much as $15 million. You did, in fact, use some of those proceeds, approximately, and correct me if my recollection is wrong, about $3.5 million for the Contra effort in Central America. Yes, sir. But most of the money never reached the Contras, including $8 million remaining today in a private Swiss account. Operating in secret, the enterprise was free to put profits above patriotism. They even sold arms directly to the Contras at a huge markup. If the purpose of the enterprise was to help the Contras, why did you charge Calero a markup that included a profit? We were in business to make a living, Senator. We had to make we had to make a living. I didn't see anything wrong with it at the time. It was a commercial enterprise. Well, I thought the purpose of the enterprise was to was to aid Calero's cause. Can I have two purposes? I did. While profits were being made, lives were being lost. Iran has used missiles supplied by the enterprise to fight its war against Iraq. That war has already lasted more than seven years, as many as a million people killed or wounded. And in Nicaragua, the Contras use weapons from the enterprise against civilians. It's a terrorist war they're fighting. Old men, women, children are caught in the middle or killed deliberately as the Contras use violence against peasants to pressure their government. Thousands have died. Even as the hearings were taking place in Washington this summer, a Contra raid in Nicaragua killed three children and a pregnant woman. As the casualties mounted, the secret government in Washington knew that the Contra leaders were not such noble freedom fighters after all. Colonel North learned that from his own liaison with the Contras, Robert Owen. I was but a private foot soldier who believed in the cause of the Nicaraguan democratic resistance. Owen sent a secret memo to his boss. He reminded North that the chief Contra leader, Adolfo Calero, is a creation of the United States government. And he warned North that those around Calero, quote, are not first-rate people. They're liars, greed and power motivated. This war, he said, has become a business to many of them. Owen's judgment has been supported by disillusioned rebels who quit the struggle in disgust with Contra leaders. People who had never dirtied their boots, people who never went to the field, people who didn't even know how to pick up a rifle, pretending being a facade for the CIA, and whose only concern was making money. Alberto Sewer is a former Contra officer who once won the personal congratulations of Ronald Reagan, but then he discovered corruption among the Contras. They bought shoddy goods, put them at high cup prices. They bought low-grade grains like rice and beans and corn and sugar and salt and put them up uh, for sale or build them for themselves at the highest prices. Uh, they did the same with ammunitions. They did the same with rifles. All this, the contempt for Congress, the defiance of law, the huge markups and profits, the secret bank accounts, the shady characters, the shakedown of foreign governments, the complicity in death and destruction, they did all this in the dark because it would never stand the light of day. Secrecy is the freedom zealots dream of. No watchman to check the door, no accountant to check the books, no judge to check the law. The secret government has no constitution. The rules it follows are the rules it makes up. 
So William Casey could dream that the enterprise might take on a life of its own, permanent and wholly unaccountable. The director was interested in the ability to go to an existing, as he put it, off-the-shelf, self-sustaining, standalone entity that could perform certain activities on behalf of the United States. Are you not shocked that the director of Central Intelligence is proposing to you the creation of an organization to do these kinds of things outside of his own organization? Also, I can tell you I'm not shocked. They were willing to literally put the Constitution at risk uh, because they believed somehow there was a higher order of things, that the ends do, in fact, justify, are justified by the means. That's the most Marxist, totalitarian doctrine I've ever heard of in my life. Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts, a veteran of the Vietnam War, is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. If you can have a retired general and a colonel, you know, in uh, Mukti running around, uh, making deals in other countries on their own, uh, soliciting funds to wage wars to overthrow governments, and hide it from the American people so you have no accountability. You've done the very thing that uh, James Madison and others feared most when they were struggling to put the Constitution together, which was to create an accountable system which didn't have runaway power, which didn't concentrate power in one hand so that you could have uh, one person making a decision and running off against the will of the American people. What could possibly justify it? The fight against communism, of course. This nation cannot abide the communization of Central America. We cannot have Soviet bases on the mainland of this hemisphere. It means dirty wars and dirty tricks lying in deceit. These operations were designed to be secrets from the American people. Mr. Niels, I'm at a loss as to how we could announce it to the American people and not have the Soviets know about it. Well, in fact, Colonel North, you believed that the Soviets were aware of our sale of arms to Iran, weren't you? We came to a point in time when we were concerned about that. Since our adversaries know about covert operations, the only people fooled are the American people. But consent is the very heart of our constitutional system. How can people judge what they do not know or what they are told falsely? It's something troubling Americans these days. All the neighborhoods around here who get to talking about politics, they all talk, they used to talk about the bureaucrats. You know, they used to talk just about politicians, they're kind of slick people, just like used car salesmen or what else have you. Lawyers get thrown into that whole pack, too. Now they're talking about the liars. That's what I hear all the time. Well, the liars are at it again, you know. We do live in a democracy, don't we? We do, sir. Thank in, God. In which it is the people, not one Marine lieutenant colonel, that get to decide the important policy decisions for the nation. Yes. It isn't the first time that men who express reverence for democracy in public have violated the values of democracy in practice. The secret government is an interlocking network of official functionaries, spies, mercenaries, ex-generals, profiteers, and super-patriots who for a variety of motives operate outside the legitimate institutions of government. 
presidents have turned to them when they can't win the support of the Congress or the people, creating that unsupervised power so feared by the framers of our Constitution. Just imagine that William Casey's dream came true. Suppose the enterprise grew into a super-secret, self-financing, self-perpetuating organization. Suppose they decided on their own to assassinate Gorbachev or the leader of white South Africa. Could a president control them? And what if he became the enterprise's public enemy number one? Who would know? Who would say no? During the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, Lenin created something called the Cheka, a secret organization run by eight lieutenants reporting directly to him and filled with zealots who sabotaged and terrorized opponents. They made up their own rules, they chose their own missions, and they judged their own operations. You say it can't happen here. Well, before deciding for sure, let's look at the history of our secret government. World War II was over. Europe lay devastated. The United States emerged as the most powerful nation on Earth. But from the rubble rose a strange new world, a peace that was not peace and a war that was not war. We saw it emerging when the Soviets occupied Eastern Europe. The Cold War had begun. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line, lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. The Russians had been our ally against the Nazis, an expedient alliance for the sake of war. Now they were our enemy. To fight them, we turned to some of the very men who had inflicted on humanity the horrors of Hitler's madness. We hired Nazis as American spies. We struck a secret bargain with the devil. One that I know real well is Klaus Barbie. He was wanted by the French as their number one war criminal. And somehow we employed a man like that as a very secretive informant. Earhart Dabringhaus was employed in the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps and assigned to work with Nazi informants spying on the Russians. One of them was Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon, who had tortured and murdered thousands of Jews and resistance fighters. During the time I learned that Barbie was really such a brutal murderer, I reported this to my headquarters, and I thought I was going to get a promotion. I thought there was a big picture of a deal I had here, you know. And the answer was, uh, Dabringhaus, keep quiet until he's no longer useful, then we'll turn him over the French. Under those conditions, I thought, well, okay, let's work with him. You know, if you're an intelligence officer, you work with the devil. The Americans did not turn Barbie over to the French when they finished with him. They helped him escape to Bolivia. Other top Nazis were smuggled into the United States to cooperate in the war against the new enemy. Dabringhaus still remembers the attitude of his superiors. The new enemy was the only enemy. They seem to have had a preconceived program of what the communists are up to. And if I send in the report that the, there was a Nazi war criminal running around over there, Forget it, we're not interested in the Nazis anymore. We're concentrating on the communists. So began the morality of the Cold War. Anything goes. The struggle required a mentality of permanent war, a perpetual state of emergency. 
and admit a vast new apparatus of power that radically transformed our government. Its foundations were laid when President Truman signed into law the National Security Act of 1947. Now, that National Security Act, Act of 1947 changed dramatically the direction of this great nation. It established the framework for a national security state. Admiral Jean LaRocque rose through the ranks from Ensign to become a strategic planner for the Pentagon and now heads the Center for Defense Information, a public interest group. The National Security Act of 47 gave us the National Security Council. Never have we had a National Security Council so concerned about the nation's security that we were always looking for threats and looking how to orchestrate our society to oppose those threats. National security was invented almost in 1947, and now it has become the prime mover of everything we do is measured against something we invented in 1947. The National Security Act also gave us the Central Intelligence Agency. This is the house the Cold War built, the CIA, the core of the new secret government. Its chief legitimate duty was to gather foreign intelligence for America's new role as a world power. Soon it was taking on covert operations, abroad and at home. As its mission expanded, the CIA recruited adventuresome young men like Notre Dame's All-American, Ralph McGeehee. I look back to the individual that I was when I joined the agency. I was a dedicated Cold Warrior who felt the agency was out there fighting for liberty, justice, democracy, and religion around the world. And I believe wholeheartedly in this. Um, I, I just felt proud every day at work because I was out at the vanguard of the battle against the international uh, evil empire, international communist evil empire. Iran, 1953. The CIA mounted its first major covert operation to overthrow a foreign government. The target was the prime minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh. He held power legitimately through his country's parliamentary process and he was popular. Washington had once looked to him as the man to prevent a communist takeover. But that was before Mossadegh decided that the Iranian state, not British companies, ought to own and control the oil within Iran's own borders. When he nationalized the British-run oil fields, Washington saw red. Kenneth Love was a young New York Times reporter in Tehran that summer. This was in McCarthy's time, and the whole Cold War paranoia was running wild in Washington. And everybody was saying that crazy old Mossadegh was falling under the influence of the communists. This was not true. He did not receive an iota of assistance from the Soviet Union. Mansur Fahong was a young student activist in Tehran and a Mossadegh supporter. He now lives in the United States as a teacher and a writer. In those days, in early 50s, the idea of an independent, neutral state was not at all acceptable to either the West, either the United States, or the Soviet Union. Mossadegh was the victim of this East-West rivalry. The Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, and his brother Allen, director of the CIA, decided with Eisenhower's approval to overthrow Mossadegh and reinstate the Shah of Iran. Kenneth Love recalls the work of one American agent named George Carroll. He was the one that paid the money to the street gangs. He was the one that invented the idea that make everybody identify himself as a Shah's partisan, so therefore the opposition will not be able to group in the streets. That was why everybody in a vehicle and anything else had to put a Shah's picture in the windshield and put the headlights on. And that you had to do or you would 
have your windshield clubbed in and be dragged out and beaten up and killed or whatever. The mobs paid by the CIA and the police and soldiers bribed by the CIA drove Mossadegh from office. Crown Prince Abdullah greets the Shah as he lands at Baghdad Airport after a seven-hour flight from Rome. The King of Kings was back in control and more pliable than Mossadegh. American oil companies took over almost half of Iran's production. U.S. arms merchants moved in with $18 billion of weapon sales over the next 20 years. But there were losers. Nearly everybody in Iran of any importance has had a brother or a mother or a sister or a son or a father tortured, jailed, uh, uh, deprived of property without due process. I mean, an absolutely buccaneering dictatorship in our name that we supported. SAVAK was created by the CIA. SAVAK, the Shah's secret police, tortured and murdered thousands of his opponents. General Richard Secord and Albert Hakim, whom we met earlier, were among those who helped supply the Shah's insatiable appetite for the technology of control. But the weapons and flattery heaped by America on the Shah blinded us to the growing opposition of his own people. They rose up in 1979 against him. Death to the Shah, they shouted. Death to the American Satan. Khomeini is a direct consequence, and the hostage crisis is a direct consequence, and the resurgence of the Shia is a direct consequence of the CIA's overthrow of Mossadegh in 1953. It's cited often as a, uh, a, a wonderful example of an efficient CIA accomplishing something good. In reality... Uh, Edwin Firmage is a professor of law, former White House fellow, and constitutional scholar. You create a nation uh, who hates you enormously, who views you as a devil, uh, an evil force, uh, you create in that state sufficient forces of unrest that you don't have stability, uh, and those, those chickens come home to roost. You end up with a, a violation of the Constitution and uh, a hatred that is propagated today until you have embassies taken, hostages held, Hatred engendered. Hatred simply doesn't come to rest. Guatemala, 1954. Flushed with success, America's secret government decided another troublesome leader must go. This time it was Jacobo Arbenz, the democratically elected president of Guatemala. Philip Redinger was recruited from the Marines to join the CIA team. It was explained to me that this was very important for the security of the United States, that uh, we were going to prevent... Soviet beachhead in this hemisphere, we've heard about very recently, of course, and that uh, the Guatemalan government was communist, and uh, we had to do something about it. President Arpins had admired Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and his government voted often with the American position at the United Nations. But in trying to bring a new deal to Guatemala, Arpins committed two sins in the eyes of the Eisenhower administration. First, when he opened the system to all political parties, he recognized the communists, too. Well, of course, there was no, no even a hint of communism in his government. He had no communists in his cabinet. He did permit the existence of a very small communist party. Arbenz also embarked on a massive land reform program. Less than 3% of the landowners held more than 70% of the land. So Arbenz nationalized more than 1.5 million acres 
including land owned by his own family, and turned it over to the peasants. Much of that land belonged to the United Fruit Company, the giant American firm that was intent on keeping Guatemala quite literally a banana republic. United Fruit appealed to its close friends in Washington, including the Dulles brothers, who said that Arbenz was openly playing the communist game. He had to go. This was a sudden death for him. I mean, there was no chance of him winning this, this fight because of the fact that he had done this to the United Fruit Company, plus the fact that he was over, overthrowing the hegemony or hegemony of the United States over this area. And this is dangerous. It could not be tolerated. We couldn't tolerate this. From Honduras, the same country that today is the Contra staging base, the CIA launched a small band of mercenaries against Guatemala. They were easily turned back. So with its own planes and pilots, the CIA then bombed the capital. Arbenz fled and was immediately replaced by an American puppet, Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas. He overturned all of the reformist activity of President Arbenz. He, he uh, gave the land back to the United Fruit Company that had been confiscated. He took the land from the peasants and gave it back to the landowners. The CIA had called its covert action against Guatemala Operation Success. Military dictators ruled the country for the next 30 years. The United States provided them with weapons and trained their officers. The communists we saved them from would have been hard-pressed to do it better. Peasants were slaughtered. Political opponents were tortured. Suspected insurgents were shot, stabbed, burned alive, or strangled. There were so many deaths at one point that coroners complained they couldn't keep up with the workload. Operation success. What we did is caused a succession of repressive military dictatorships in that country and has been responsible for the death of over 100,000 of their citizens. Success breeds success, sometimes with dreary repetition. Mario Sandoval Alacon began his career in the CIA's adventure in Guatemala. Today he's known as a godfather of the death squad. In 1981, after lobbying Ronald Reagan's advisors for military aid to Guatemala, Sandoval Alacan danced at the inaugural ball. Richard Bissell, another veteran of the Guatemalan coup, went on to become the CIA's chief of covert operations. I looked him up several years ago for a CBS documentary. He talked about a secret report prepared for the White House in 1954 by a group of distinguished citizens headed by former President Herbert Hoover. Quote, it is now clear that we are facing an implacable enemy whose avowed objective is world domination. There are no rules in such a game. Hitherto accepted norms of human conduct do not apply. If the United States is to survive, long-standing American concepts of fair play must be reconsidered. We must learn to subvert, sabotage, and destroy our enemies by more clever, more sophisticated, more effective methods than those used against us. Was that the prevailing ethic? I think that's an excellent statement of, of the prevailing view, at least the view of, of those who've had any contact uh, with covert operations uh, of one kind or another. In other words, the nature of the enemy is such that any necessary are justified in order to thwart him and defeat him. I believe that was the view. It certainly was my view at the time. Cuba, 1961, seven years after Operation Success in Guatemala, 
Bissell was planning another CIA covert operation. The assault has begun on the dictatorship of Fidel Castro. On April 17, 1961, Cuban exiles trained by the CIA at a base in friendly Guatemala landed on the southern coast of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs. The U.S. had promised air support, but President Kennedy canceled it. The invaders, left defenseless, surrendered. Seven months after the disastrous invasion, Kennedy delivered a major foreign policy address. We cannot, as a free nation, compete with our adversaries in tactics of terror, assassination, false promises, counterfeit mobs, and crises. The president was not telling the truth. Even as he spoke, his administration was planning a new covert war on Cuba. It would include some of the dirty tricks the president said we were above. The secret government was prepared for anything. At one time, the CIA organized a small department known as Executive Action, which was a permanent assassination capability. And it wasn't just an assassination capability. It was a capability to discredit or get rid of people. But it, it could have included assassination. And it did. There were at least eight documented attempts to kill Castro. He says there were two dozen. And there was even one effort to put LSD in his cigars. To help us get rid of the Cuban leader, our secret government turned to the mafia, just as we once made use of Nazis. The gangsters included the Las Vegas mafioso John Rosselli, the Don of Chicago, Sam Giancana, and the boss of Tampa, Santo Traficante. I think we should not have involved ourselves with the uh, mafia. I think uh, an organization that does so is losing control of the security of its, of its information. I think we should have been afraid that we would open ourselves to blackmail. If I read you correctly, you're saying it's the involvement with the mafia that disturbed you and, and, and not the need or decision to assassinate a foreign leader. Correct. It's a chilling thought, made more chilling by the assassination of John Kennedy. The accusations linger. In some minds, the suspicions persist of a dark, unsolved conspiracy behind his murder. You can dismiss them, as many of us do, but knowing now what our secret government planned for Castro the possibility remains. Once we decide that anything goes, anything can come home to haunt us. The sad thing of the last few years is, both with regard to Central America, where our covert activities have included assassination manuals, as well as uh, what may have occurred in Libya with regard to a bombing raid uh, on Gaddafi, a person no American can sympathize with, is that the assassination issue has reared its head again as an extreme example of a covert kind of activity. My own sense is we make a great, great mistake, and we endanger one person above anyone else, and that's the president, if we engage in assassination types of techniques, because no foreign government can defeat the United States Army, but a lot of foreign individuals can come up with ways of killing an individual American citizen. Vietnam, 1968. American soldiers are fighting and dying in the jungles of Southeast Asia. But the Vietnam War didn't start this way. It started secretly, off the books, 
like so many of these ventures that have ended disastrously. The CIA got there early, soon after the Vietnamese won their independence from the French in 1954. Eisenhower warned that the nations of Southeast Asia would fall like dominoes if the communists led by Ho Chi Minh took over all Vietnam. To hold the line, we installed in Saigon a puppet regime under No Dien Jim. American trained commandos were used to sabotage bus and rail lines and contaminate North Vietnam's oil supplies. Vice President Nixon brought moral support to Jim, but the situation kept getting worse. President Kennedy sent the Green Berets to Vietnam and turned to full-scale counterinsurgency. He had once said Vietnam was the ultimate test of our will to stem the tide of world communism. By the time of his death, there were 15,000 Americans there. They were called advisors. The secret war was leading only to deeper involvement and more deception. It is my duty to the American people to report that renewed hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have today required me to order the military forces of the United States to take action and reply. This president was not telling the truth either. The action in the Gulf of Tonkin was not unprovoked. South Vietnam had been conducting secret raids in the area against the North, and the American destroyer, ordered into the battle zone, had advance warning it could be attacked. But Johnson seized the incident to stampede Congress into passing the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. He then used it as a blank check for the massive buildup of American forces. You have always had presidents who, as an aberration, will act uh, on their own. And and then afterward look to Congress for authorization retrospectively of their act. But in this case, you had a full-dress defense of inherent presidential power, inherent executive power, and the power as commander-in-chief to use the Army and the Navy whatever way they wanted. The Constitution is clear on this, too. Congress shall have the power to declare war. April 1965. Two battalions of Marines land in South Vietnam, the first of more than two and a half million Americans to fight there with no congressional declaration of war. The dirty little war that began in secret is reaching full roar. Free fire zone, defoliation, the massacre at My Lai, Napalm, and the CIA's Operation Phoenix to round up torture and kill suspected Viet Cong. We were murdering these people, incinerating them. Ralph McGee was there for the CIA and helped set up South Vietnam's secret police. My efforts had resulted in the deaths of many people. And I, I just, for me, it was a period when I guess I was, I consider myself nearly insane. I just couldn't reconcile what I had been and what I was at the time becoming. Uh, and, and it was so painful for me. It, it's just hard for me to uh, express it because I became completely antisocial. I couldn't deal with anybody. I, I just was dealing mentally. It was an internal battle. Every night I would lay in my bed and think, well, this can't be true. Why are we doing this? Why don't we stop? Why don't why can't we accept? And I was just a battle all night long, all day long. Every minute of the day, I fought this battle over and over again, and it, and it 
to me, suicide became a long-for way out of this turmoil that I could see no other exit from. And finally, when I got over that, I wanted to jump off the agency's hotel, the Duke Hotel out there, and then kill myself uh, and hang a banner, the CIA or the CIA lies or something like that, just to try to bring home, have my death serve some purpose to make the American people realize that it's the truth they were being lied to. Many of the secret warriors in Southeast Asia had no such doubts or regrets. Some of the team that later joined the Iran-Contra enterprise helped to run the secret war in Laos. Coming in from an altitude of about 2,000 feet. As General Richard Secord later put it, Laos belonged to the CIA. American planes blasted the communists in the jungle. And on the ground, we had our own secret army, the Hmong tribesmen. The Hmong fought the communists for 15 years, while our secret government made grandiose promises to them about the future. But we abandoned them to the communist Papat Lao in 1975. One-third of the mountain people died. Religious groups helped survivors to escape and brought some of them to Wausau, Wisconsin. I wouldn't be here if my father and my brothers were involved, you know, during the secret war. I am here because I have no choice of being here. And I would be, like I say, an example here right now, you know, 27 years after, you know, of a CIA, you know, goof-up because... They weren't willing to carry through their, you know, goals. They think that it was so simple that people are just like a pawn of a game, like a chess game, you know, that you can move them around anywhere you want. But you have to understand that human life is very different from, you know, playing with human life is different from playing a game. Because a game, you know, once you lose, there's nothing at stake. But when you lose a person's life or devastate a whole country as they did to my country, that is very important. Please. During the hearings this summer, Oliver North repeated something we've heard often in the last 40 years from presidents and the president's men. I want you to know lying does not come easy to me. I want you to know that it doesn't come easy to anybody. But I think we all had to weigh in the balance the difference between lives and lies. But these memories suggest a different equation the lives lost because we lied to ourselves and to others. Someone always pays for decisions made secretly in Washington. Looking at such pictures brings to mind the words of an old ally, a Vietnamese official who survived the fall of Saigon and escaped to America. Life and death issues for us, he says, were merely bargaining chips in the American pursuit of global policy. I played a minor role in the Kennedy administration and a much larger one for half the Johnson years. I saw the Peace Corps go forth one day and the Green Berets the next. Once I wrote a speech for LBJ which implied a striking coincidence between the President's wish and God's will. A wise older man from my past called to gently upbraid me. He reminded me that it's very important how we talk about God because there can be disastrous consequences to what we say. Just so. We've learned that presidents must be very careful talking about what they want this nation to do, 
because the United States can unhinge whole countries simply by shifting our weight. We suffered then the passion of the time that America's defense and security were at stake in Vietnam, but our obsession was the real threat. Vietnam pushed the Cold War morality to its extreme conclusion, exorbitant means to accomplish limited ends. Anything goes. The wounds still run deep. There are 58,000 names on this wall. 58,000 men died in Vietnam. Their deaths, and all the deaths in Southeast Asia, the names not on this wall, raise painful questions about our secret government and our role in the world. Were we certain what we asked people to die for? The men who wrote our Constitution tried to make it hard to go to war. Human life was at stake, they knew, and the character of our republic. War should be soberly decided, publicly debated, and mutually determined by the people's representatives. It is the people, after all, who must fight, pay, and die once the choice is made. The Constitution was to protect them from dying for the wrong reasons. It was to protect them from killing for the wrong reasons. I don't know. The public still don't want to understand what the hell really happened. Maybe one day they will. It's very Central America. I see the same damn thing happening there in Central America that happened in Vietnam. Well, I think the country has learned uh, very graphically that we better be really assured that if we're going to send our young men and women off to die like this, that it better really be in the interest of every citizen of this United States to sacrifice somebody like that so that we don't have more blood on this wall or other walls. And I think that we ask a lot of questions now that we didn't used to ask. We want to know why. And we'll, we'll hear uh, Ali North's uh, analysis of what's happening with the Contras, and a lot of us say we want some more verification of that. We want to know just what are we involving ourselves in when we go to do that? Looking back, it's stunning how easily the Cold War enticed us into surrendering popular control of government to the national security state. We've never come closer to bestowing absolute authority on the president. Setting up White House groups that secretly decide to fight dirty little wars is a direct assumption of the war powers expressly forbidden by the Constitution. Not since December 1941 has Congress declared war. Since then, we've had a police action in Korea, advisors in Vietnam, covert operations in Central America, peacekeeping in Lebanon, and low-intensity conflicts going on right now from Angola to Cambodia. We've turned the war powers of the United States over to where we're never really sure who, or what they're doing, or what it costs, or who is paying for it. The one thing we are sure of is that this largely secret global war carried on with less and less accountability to democratic institutions, has become a way of life. And now we're faced with a question brand new in our history. Can we have the permanent warfare state and democracy too? In 1975, as the war in Vietnam came to an end, Congress took its first public look at the secret government. Senator Frank Church chaired the Select Committee to Study Government Operations. The hearings opened the books on a string of lethal activities, from the use of electric pistols and poison pellets to mafia connections and drug experiments. And they gave us a detailed account of assassination plots against foreign leaders and the overthrowing of sovereign governments. 
We learned, for example, how the Nixon administration had waged a covert war against the government of Chile's president, Salvador Allende, who was ultimately overthrown by a military coup and assassinated. Like Caesar peering into the colonies from distant Rome, Nixon said the choice of government by the Chileans was unacceptable to the president of the United States. The attitude in the White House seemed to be, if in the wake of Vietnam I can no longer send in, send in the Marines, then I will send in the CIA. But the secret government had also waged war on the American people. The hearings examined a long train of covert actions at home, from the bugging of Martin Luther King by the FBI under Kennedy and Johnson to gross violations of the law and of civil liberties in the 1970s. They went under code names such as Chaos, Cable Splicer, Garden Plot, and Leprechaun. According to the hearings, the secret government had been given a license to reach all the way to every mailbox, every college campus, every telephone, and every home. We start out breaking foreign laws, since most countries have laws against secretly overthrowing their governments. And then you end up breaking the law at home and coming to feel a contempt for the law your colleagues and associates, for the Congress and the public, and for the Constitution. Morton Halpern worked for Henry Kissinger on the National Security Council in 1969. Critical of policies in Cambodia and Vietnam, he resigned. He later discovered his telephone had been bugged for 21 months. He is now the director of the Washington office of the American Civil Liberties Union. What you have is a growing gap between the perceptions inside the executive branch about what threats are to our national security, and the beliefs in the Congress and the public about the threats to national security. And that leads to secrecy. That is what drives the policy underground. That's what leads the president to rely more on covert operations, and what leads the president and his officials to lie to the public and lie to the Congress about the operation, precisely because they cannot get their way in public debate. They are driven to seek to circumvent the democratic process. And the president ought not to be in a position, in my humble opinion, of having to go out and explain to the American people on a biweekly basis or any other time that I, the president, am carrying out the following secret operations. It just can't be done. It is said that the constitutional system of checks and balances has so prohibited the president, so hamstrung him, that he cannot effectively lead foreign policy, that he has to be resorting to clandestine, covert, secret. What's that? He needs to do that only when he wants to subvert Congress. If Congress says, don't do that, and the president says, but I want to, I want to, I really want to, the conclusion from that isn't that the president is right. It is that the president is considering being an outlaw. It's been said that the secret realm of government is the deformed offspring of the modern presidency. Presidents take an oath to uphold the Constitution but then they find the cumbersome sharing with Congress an obstacle and start looking for shortcuts to silence their critics and achieve their objectives. And it goes back to the beginning. I mean, there is a famous letter which uh, Madison wrote late in his life in which he said, perhaps it is a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home will be charged to dangers real or imagined from abroad. And that is the lesson of history. Was the well, but we don't seem to learn the lessons of history. Just 14 years ago, another Senate committee listened to another string of witnesses. The names still trip off the tongue. Alderman, 
Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, and if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. The White House crimes known as Watergate. Cover would be taken off of the telephone, and two of the wires connected with this. Crimes against democracy. To harass opponents, the Nixon White House had set up a secret team called the Plumbers. They bugged phones, opened mail, and burglarized the president's critics. Senator Inouye read the Watergate committee a secret White House memo containing the Nixon enemies list and how the plumbers intended to punish them. Stated a bit more bluntly how we can use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies. In both the Watergate and Iran-Contra hearings, there was contempt for Congress. I believe Congress set up the FBI to determine what was going on in this country, didn't it? Among other things, Mr. Chairman. It set up the CIA to determine what was going on in respect to foreign intelligence, didn't it? Yes, sir. And a number of but others. it didn't set up the plumbers, did it? Of course, the Congress doesn't do everything. No, but Congress is the only one that's got legislative power. And I don't know anything, any law that gave the president the power to set himself up what some people have called the secret police, namely the plumbers. What was the reason to withhold information from Congress when they inquired about it? I simply didn't want any outside interference. Now, the outside interference you're talking about was Congress. And I take it the reason they were inquiring was precisely so that they could fulfill with information their constitutional function to pass legislation one way or the other. Isn't that true? Uh, yes, I suppose that's true. And that you regarded as outside interference. There was contempt for the law. If the president could authorize a covert break-in, and you don't know exactly where that power would be limited, you don't think it could include murder. Other crimes beyond covert break-ins, do you? Oh, I don't. I don't know where the line is, Senator. During your discussions with Mr. Casey, Mr. McFarland, and Mr. Poindexter about the plan, did a question ever arise among you as to whether what was being proposed was legal? Oh no, I don't. I don't think it was. I mean, first of all, we operated from the premise that everything we did do was legal. Well, I'll go back. And there was contempt for the truth. Minister Mitchell, do you draw the distinction between not volunteering and lying? Well, it depends entirely on the subject matter. Well, you ask a direct question and you don't volunteer the direct answer. You might say you're not volunteering, but actually uh, you're lying on those. Well, I think we'd have to find out what the specifics are of what particular occasion and what case. Could you explain to me the difference that you think there is between knowing that you've left the false, a false impression or a wrong impression and lying, to use an old-fashioned term? Yeah, I think lying, we, we really mean, uh, I mean, a deliberate effort to mislead people uh, to a deliberate effort to leave them with a misleading impression. What I hoped to do was to avoid the question and duck the question as I, President Reagan's men did learn one thing from Watergate. Richard Nixon said it only last year. Just destroy all the tapes. Where are these memoranda? 
Which memoranda? The memoranda that you sent up to Admiral Poindexter seeking the President's approval. I think I shredded most of that. Did I, did I get them all? I, I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm just... Well, that was going to be my very next question, Colonel North. Isn't it true that you shredded them? I, I believe I did. Do you think that what we've seen of the secret sale of arms to Iran and the private war in Nicaragua is on a par with what we saw at Watergate? Oh, the substance of it is far above Watergate. You have the sale of armaments to terrorist groups, which can only foment more kidnapping and more terror and, and, and finance it. You have the doing of this by members of the armed forces, a very scary thing. Uh, you have the government, at part in least, put in motion doing things that Congress has forbidden, direct illegality. You have constitutional abuses that are enormous. The Watergate did drive Richard Nixon from office. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. The imperial presidency was down, but not out. Ronald Reagan ran in 1980 with a strong and clear message. The world was a hostile place and closing in on America. Russian troops were in Afghanistan, Sandinistas were in Nicaragua, and Americans were being held in Iran. President Reagan wanted to reinvigorate the CIA, and he chose a tough director to run it, his campaign manager, William Casey. They were ideological soulmates, true cold warriors on the offensive. In seven years, Ronald Reagan approved over 50 major covert operations, more than any president since John F. Kennedy. Reagan and Casey set the agenda, but it was this man's job to carry it out. In Oliver North, they had their 007. North's primary mission was to keep the Contra War going, despite the congressional ban on aid. For two years, he masterminded a privately funded airlift to Honduras. According to some reports, criminal elements used the secret airlift to smuggle drugs back into the United States, with profits being used to buy more weapons for the Contras. Two congressional committees are investigating those reports. Were there Contras who relied on the profits of narcotics in order to buy arms and to survive? Yes, I'm convinced of that. Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts had the Foreign Relations Subcommittee. Once you open up a clandestine network which has the ability to deliver weapons or other goods from this country, leaving airfields secretly, under the sanction of a, quote, covert operation uh, with public officials, DEA, customs, law enforcement, whatever, pulled back because of the covert sanctioning. You've opened the pipeline for nefarious types who are often involved in these kinds of activities to become uh, the people who bring things back in. Oliver North had been told the airlift was using questionable characters. Robert Owen, his contact man with the Contras, wrote from the field that some of the leaders were running drugs. In February of 86, Owen advised North that a resupply plane had been used for shipping drugs. In Owen's words, part of the crew had criminal records. The second sentence says, nice group the boys choose. Who are the boys? CIA. So what happens is the President of the United States says this is the national security. You must uh, step back and let these people do their job in, 
therefore, a lot of smugglers, drug traffickers, others go through the back door. I don't think the President of the United States said specifically, look the other way to these things. I don't think the President of the United States knew these things were going on. But the President of the United States did encourage, to such a degree, the continuation of aid to the Contras. And it was so clear through Casey and Poindexter, et cetera, that this was going to please the President if it happened. It's clear that there were those who turned their heads and looked the other way because they knew that this major goal was out there and it was part of it. And if there happened to be these minor aberrations, as people referred to them, uh, that was a price you were paying in the effort to accomplish the larger goal, which larger goal, obviously, was against the law and against the wishes of the Congress and against the American people. How does it happen that to be anti-communist we become undemocratic, as if we have to subvert our society? This is part of the answer. The powers claimed by presidents and national security have become the controlling wheel of government, driving everything else. Secrecy then makes it possible for the president to pose as the sole competent judge of what will best protect our security. Secrecy permits the White House to control what others know, and that's power. How many times have we heard a president say, if you only knew what I know, you would understand why I'm doing what I'm doing? But it's a self-defeating situation. Someone said, everything secret degenerates, even the administration of justice. So in the bunker of the White House, the men who served the president put loyalty above analysis, and judgment yields to obedience. Just salute and follow orders. This lieutenant colonel is not going to challenge a decision of the commander-in-chief for whom I still work, and I am proud to work for that commander-in-chief. And if the commander-in-chief tells this lieutenant colonel to go stand in the corner and sit on his head, I will do so. That notion troubled Senator Inouye, a combat hero of World War II. He reminded Colonel North of the military code of a soldier's duty. The uniform code makes it abundantly clear that it must be the lawful orders of a superior officer. The fact that says members of the military have an obligation to disobey unlawful orders. This principle was considered so important that we, we, the government of the United States, proposed that it be internationally applied in the Nuremberg trials. And so in the Nuremberg trials, we said that the fact that the defendant I find this offensive. I find you're engaging in a personal attack on Colonel North, and you're far removed from the issues of this case. Colonel North's lawyer deflected Senator Inouye, but some of North's fellow officers watching on television took issue with the colonel. I'm two years senior to Oliver North out of the Naval Academy, and the only thing he's got on me is a silver star and six more years in the Corps. And when Oliver North started to say the things he started to say. I literally wanted to throw things at my TV set. I seriously considering mailing my Naval Academy ring back to the Naval Academy and denying ever having gone there. I was so embarrassed and humiliated that a professional military officer would stoop to the dishonor and disgrace and warmonger that Oliver North and Poindexter and McFarland and the rest of the crew did selling arms to the Iranians after they blew up the Beirut barracks, after they blew up the Beirut embassy, is the most immoral thing. That's like selling Zyklon B to the Germans after you found out the Holocaust is underway.
One of my drill instructors in Green Corps, by the way, we're talking about at that time there were a lot of protests in Washington D.C. and somebody said, "Well, those commie lovers or whatever." And the drill instructor told us something as we were about to graduate. He said, "What you're fighting for might be wrong or right. Nobody really knows." But he said, "There's a constitution that allows those people to be out on the streets protesting." He said, "That's what's worth fighting for. That's what the constitution is." He said, "That's what you took an oath to. When you put those bars on as a second lieutenant, you better remember that." I don't think Oliver North had that drill instructor. It was career military men who managed the Iran-Contra debacle under Reagan and Casey. North, Poindexter, McFarland, Secord, Singlau were all trained to fight wars, not run foreign policy. In war, the aim is absolute and simple. Destroy the enemy, no matter what. They have little understanding of politics in Iran, Nicaragua, and most important, in Washington. Our foreign policy has increasingly become a military policy. Ronald Reagan has doubled the number of military men on the staff of the National Security Council. What was created in 1947 as a civilian advisory group to the president has become a command post for covert operations run by the military. Far removed from public view and congressional oversight, they are accountable only to the one man they serve. The framers of the Constitution feared a permanent state of war, with the commander-in-chief served by an elite private corps who put the claims of the sovereign above the Constitution. This is the first page of an order uh, signed and approved by President Reagan. This is the ultimate weapon of the secret government the National Security Decision Directive, the NSDD. Every president since Harry Truman has issued them. They're not published in any government register. Ronald Reagan has signed at least 280 such directives. They cover everything from outer space to nuclear weapons to covert operations in Iran and Nicaragua. In essence, by an arbitrary and secret decree, the president can issue himself a license to do as he will, where he will and the only ones who need to know are the secret agents who carry it out, the Knights of the Oval Office. You have testified that as a member of the National Security Council staff, you conducted a covert operation. And my question is, uh, did the President specifically designate the National Security Council staff for that purpose? I think what I have said consistently is that I believe president has the authority to do what he wants with his own staff, that I was a member of his staff, that Mr. McFarlane was, and that Admiral Poindexter was, and that in pursuing the president's foreign policy goals of support for the Nicaraguan resistance, he was fully within his rights to send us off to talk to foreign heads of state, to seek the assistance of those foreign heads of state, to use other than U.S. government monies, and to do so without a finding. Without a finding. There's a law which requires presidents to make a finding that the national interest will be served by a covert action and to report it to Congress in a timely fashion. The idea is to make sure that both the Congress and the executive, each elected independently by the people, are accountable for what is done in our name. But President Reagan gave himself permission to ignore the requirements of the law. And when he sold arms to our avowed enemy in Iran, he signed the finding after the fact and then ordered that it not be reported to Congress. The president becomes his own arbiter of the law in matters of national security. Or in 
Richard Nixon's words, when the president does it, that means it is not illegal. I think it is very important for the American people to understand that this is a dangerous world, that we live at risk, and that this nation is at risk in a dangerous world. The issue here is not whether we should pursue a foreign policy that guards against the Soviet Union. That's not the issue, because obviously, in significant ways, the Soviet Union represents a threat to our interests around the world and to our values. The problem is, is the, the excessive American perception of that threat, the pathological ways we construe that threat, and what it needs us to do. Because in addition to distorting our domestic priorities and undermining our democratic civil liberties at home, in the end, arguably, it actually does damage to our national security. There is a doctrine called the reason of state, that whatever is necessary to defend the state's survival must be done by the individuals responsible for it. Doesn't that take precedence over this 18th century set of values? I think the survival of the state is what the Constitution is about. The reason of state argument is a very slippery thing, and at heart, at best, amoral. The idea amoral? Of, oh, you bet. Uh, I would say it ranges from amoral on the good side to just, just basically immoral. Assume I'm president. I'm going to say, Professor Fermage, that's all wonderful, but I deal in an ugly world. The United States is a wonderful place, relatively, because of this document, because of the values the founders uh, inculcated in us. But the world beyond these borders is a pretty ugly world. People don't like us. People don't share those values. People are out to get us. And if I don't do the ugly things that are necessary to protect us from an ugly world, you won't be able to exercise the right of free speech out of that university. I would say poppycock, Mr. President. That is, that is simply nonsense. The whole fight is over means, not ends. Every president with every good intention and every tyrant with whatever his intention has used precisely the same argument. That is, don't constrain me by means and I will get you there safely and well. And I think any time we accept a reason of state argument to justify means that are totally incongruent with the values of our state, we're on the high road to tyranny. And we deserve to be there. Our nation was born in rebellion against tyranny. We are the fortunate heirs of those who fought for America's freedom and then drew up a remarkable charter to protect it against arbitrary power. The Constitution begins with the words, We the people. Roger Wilkins, he and his family have long battled for a more just America. If we continue these policies to rob ourselves in order to feed this national security monster, we are going to continue to degrade American life. That's real national security. National security for the United States is making the United States a good place to live where people want to be active, intelligent, involved citizens. For people at the top to say this world is so complicated and so dangerous, just a few of us need to govern it and hold the secrets in, and we will tell you what's good for you, that is moving down the road to dictatorship. The national security argument now interferes with every American's right to understand its government. That's what secrecy is all about these days. Scott Armstrong is director of the National Security Archive, a public interest group devoted to a more open government. He has poured over the Iran-Contra evidence and believes Congress has failed to deal with the fundamental constitutional issues. The inability of Congress to interpret the Article I powers that they have over foreign policy in relationship 
to the president's powers under Article 2 and to say, wait a minute, this isn't the way the Constitution was set up. This isn't what the Founding Fathers intended. The Founding Fathers never intended for George Washington to be able to go to George III and say, I don't like what Congress has done here. Give me some money. I'll hire some mercenaries, and we'll call it American foreign policy. That would have been treason. Dale Jensen, Mary Lee Fithian, and Nancy Jones live in Minneapolis. Last summer, they organized citizens around the state to monitor the Iran-Contra hearings as a way of increasing public awareness. The church I go to, we, we have a hymn that the words go something like, uh, I wish that my eyes had never been opened. Because if they'd been opened, I'd have to do something about it. And I think that that's a problem with a lot of people in this country, is that they, want, they don't want their eyes to be opened because they're very comfortable, very secure. And if their eyes are open, they're going to have to do something. The people that we're talking to have quite, uh, they recognize that we're only talking about subverting the Constitution, that's all. The American people are part of the checks and balances. It's not just the executive branch and the Congress and the judicial branch. The people have a role, too. I grew up just feeling as though the system already is pretty hunky-dory. All you have to do is admire it and respect it and let it keep operating. We'll always have freedom. We'll always have democracy. We'll always have free elections. I've got a question, you know, that that's going to continue unless I decide to go for it and keep on affecting change. Pete Edstrom is a dairy farmer in Wisconsin, a believer in the American way. With his pastor and other farmers, he started a newspaper to rally their neighbors to community action. If there's anything I want my children to understand, it's, it's the, the concept of the old town meeting type of politics where people do it. People are involved. People are informed. Uh, I think that probably the problems this country are in right now, the hearings are a classical example are clearly a case of, of an American people not having been involved. I would like to welcome all of you here this afternoon to the Wisconsin Valley Fair. Walter John Chilson is a Republican state senator in Wisconsin, a popular conservative who says the hearings this summer forced him to reconsider his support for U.S. policy in Central America. You've been a Republican for 20 years, and you, uh, you like to say that the Republicans are the best guys, the guys in the white hats, and... Uh, the uh, recognition that, uh, that indeed in this very important situation that wasn't the case, that uh, the policy was dead wrong, uh, I felt an obligation to, uh, to speak out. Senator Chilson's change of heart was personal and political. At the urging of Liz, their daughter, he and his wife went to Central America to see for themselves. When they returned, he was still critical of the Sandinistas in Nicaragua but convinced that an American-backed war on peasants was not the way to stop communism. There's a great danger that in this country we would accept automatically uh, things that are said to us in a, in a doctrinaire fashion, you know, that uh, we've got to be fighting communism, and so that can uh, be the whitewash that uh, can cover up a multitude of sins. I think that's uh, a strong evidence that that is what was going on, and uh, we can't... Uh, fighting uh, uh, for democracy in uh, Central America and uh, seeing it lost back here at home, you know, and being it, seeing it uh, shredded back here at home. 
it doesn't have to be. The people who wrote this Constitution lived in a world more dangerous than ours. They were surrounded by territory controlled by hostile powers on the edge of a vast wilderness. Yet they understood that even in perilous times, the strength of self-government was public debate and public consensus. To put aside these basic values out of fear, to imitate the foe in order to defeat him, is to shred the distinction that makes us different. In the end, not only our values but our methods separate us from the enemies of freedom in the world. The decisions we make are inherent in the methods that produce them. An open society cannot survive a secret government. Constitutional democracy, you see, is no romantic notion. It's our defense against ourselves, the one foe who might defeat us. I'm Bill Moyers. I've been waiting for something to happen For a week or a month or a year With the blood in the ink of the headlines And the sound of the crowd in my ear You might ask what it takes to remember When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war There's a shadow Now, 
around $400 billion annually. I would think that there'll be around a trillion dollars in five to seven years' time. Can you talk to us about the deficit? Are you worried? Should this be a near-term Everybody ought to be worried about the deficit. It's a big deficit, but the time will come to deal with it. And so then the government goes bust, but before it does that, it will inflate its way out, or try to inflate its way out. And that won't work. So the next step will be to go to war. Uh, the whole thing will crash. Since the release of our first documentary, Hyperinflation Nation, five months ago, gold prices have increased from $925 per ounce to over $1,150 per ounce, while silver has increased from $14 per ounce to over $18 per ounce. The rise in the price of gold and silver is a result of the major monetary inflation being created by the Federal Reserve, which has held interest rates at 0% for almost a full year. Under the false pretenses of trying to get our phony economy to recover, the Federal Reserve is giving trillions of dollars away for free to bankers on Wall Street at the expense of the American middle class, who will soon see the purchasing power of their savings disappear. The false strength of our phony economy has become dependent on easy money and cheap credit from the Federal Reserve. The longer the Federal Reserve waits to raise interest rates, the greater the chances that our economy will overdose on excess liquidity. There will be two social classes of Americans in the future. Those who sell their U.S. dollars today and buy gold and silver, and those who buy into the false hope of an economic recovery. It's sort of like trying to get somebody off drugs. You don't, what you're talking about is you don't want the withdrawal symptoms, and I admit there will be withdrawal symptoms. But keeping them on the drug, which is easy money, easy spending, and huge deficits and all of that, that'll kill the patient. And the, and the patient, for me, is the dollar, and we're going to be on the verge of killing the patient. And when you see gold up at $1,100 an ounce, that's a little bit of a warning sign. If we keep interest rates artificially low, we're going to destroy the currency. We're, not just, we're going to be talking about you know, gold not just going up, you know, to twenty-five dollars in a day, but fifty dollars, a hundred dollars in a day, a thousand dollars in a day. The U.S. national debt just surpassed twelve trillion dollars, and the U.S. government itself is estimating a nine trillion dollar budget deficit over the next ten years. If the U.S. government was a publicly traded company, it would be bankrupt, and its stock price would be zero. It's only a matter of time before the decline in the U.S. dollar we are seeing today becomes a route and the dollar returns to its intrinsic value of zero. From what I read and from what I see, there's no intention whatsoever of U.S. policymakers to do anything to stabilize the dollar. They'll continue to print money, and I think long term, my end value for the dollar is zero. While they see it as a remote possibility, their big concern for the moment is the potential for a disorderly decline in the dollar, which they describe as a momentum-led sell-off where the market would become untethered to fundamentals. In that event, officials say they have contingency plans of what they would say and do. They've declined to specify what those plans would be. They insist those plans are not a matter of heightened concern, just prudent preparation, like a plan for the invasion of a country that is unlikely to invade. You never expect to need it but it would be foolish not to have it in place. There is no point for the government to make a contingency plan for when the dollar collapses, because at that point, it will be too late. They should be acting to restore confidence in the dollar 
now before it collapses. The Federal Reserve is nothing more than a counterfeiting operation. Since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, 95 cents of every dollar saved by Americans has been stolen. Some might consider the Federal Reserve to be unconstitutional and this dilution of savings to be a crime. Yet there is still no widespread outrage about it. This is not new. This is historic. The king in the old days always had key, always had control of the money. They did it in different ways. They clipped coins, diluted the metal, printed money. Today, it's really sophisticated. It's done secretly with a computer. And that's why it, it's made it so much more dangerous than ever before. So who got the money? To financial institutions in, in Europe and other countries? Which ones? I don't know. Half a trillion dollars, and you don't know who got the money. Uh, the loan went to the the loans go to the central banks, and they they then put them out to their um, to their institutions to try to bring down short-term interest rates in dollar markets around the world. Well, look at the next page. The very next page has the U.S. dollar nominal exchange rate, which shows a 20% increase in U.S. dollar nominal exchange rate at exactly the same time that you were handing out half a trillion dollars to foreigners. Do you think that's a coincidence? Yes. Bernanke is not doing a good job. He's doing a horrific job. He's doing, you know, about as bad a job as you could do. I mean, maybe it's possible there's somebody who could do a worse job. I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but there might be. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke recently said that the U.S. should cut down on its budget deficit in order to reduce global imbalances. This is hypocritical, as it's Bernanke who is allowing the U.S. to have such huge budget deficits by monetizing our government spending. Bernanke is the only person with the power to put a stop to this madness. But in his campaign to get reappointed, he most likely promised everyone in Washington that he would continue monetizing their spending into the future. In 10 years' time, in my opinion, about 50% of tax revenues will be used to just cover the interest payments on the government debt. And that is unsustainable when you really are forced to print money. Have you ever looked around your house to see where the products inside of it were made? Most likely, 90% of them were made in China. How could the U.S. have the biggest economy in the world if so few of what we own is made here? The U.S.'s biggest export is inflation. Because of the dollar's status as the world's reserve currency, we can just print the money to purchase the goods we consume. However, the world is now looking to move away from the dollar as the world's reserve currency. This should be front story on the evening news every night. This is, this is a big thing. Our credit card is about to be taken away. I mean, the reason that this country has been able to survive all these years is because we can print money instead of making stuff. It is the U.S. dollar status as the world's reserve currency and the fact that foreign nations are forced to trade oil and other commodities in U.S. dollars that has kept the U.S. economy propped up until now. Recent reports indicate that Saudi states are meeting with countries like China and Japan in order to end dollar-based oil transactions and begin transacting oil using a new basket of currencies. To further their move away from the U.S. dollar, China's Ministry of Finance recently announced plans to sell billions worth of two-year three-year, and five-year yuan-denominated bonds in Hong Kong. Shockingly, 
Over the past three months, foreign central banks have put 63% of their new cash purchases into euros and yen, and not into the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar still accounts for 62% of the world's foreign currency reserves at foreign central banks. But for how long? India just purchased 200 metric tons of gold from the IMF for $6.7 billion in order to diversify their reserves away from the U.S. dollar. How low will the U.S. dollar fall and how high will gold rise when more central banks diversify out of dollars into gold? Despite China boosting its gold reserves by 76%, since 2003, gold still only accounts for 1.5% of China's foreign currency reserves. Yet, China still owns $1.6 trillion in U.S. dollar reserves. Most telling of all, China is now encouraging their citizens to invest in silver and will be offering silver for sale at banks in China. It's discussed as an investment opportunity for silver volume. The bars are available in 500 grams, 1 kilogram, 2 kilograms, and 5 kilograms with a purity of 99.9%. Figures show that gold was 50 times more expensive than silver in 2007. But now that figure has reached over 70 times, the highest in the past five years. Analysts say that silver has been undervalued in recent years. They add that the metal is a wise investment for individual investors and could be a good way to cash in. We are the first to offer silver bullion as an investment opportunity. The price for the first batch of the bullion is set very low, close to the cost of the raw material. The investment threshold is not high and is more suitable for the general public. Silver is much cheaper than gold. While the U.S. saw positive GDP growth last quarter, and Bernanke called the recession very likely over, Consumer spending now accounts for 71% of our GDP compared to the long-term average of 65%. This means our economy is actually weakening underneath the surface. In order for our economy to truly recover, we need to switch from being a nation of consumers to a nation of producers. But in order for the U.S. to once again begin producing goods to export to the rest of the world, we need Americans to increase savings. In late 2008, early 2009, after the U.S. financial markets collapsed, the first instinct of Americans was to start saving. While initially the American savings rate tripled to a high in May of 6.2%, after the government's artificial stimulus took effect, the savings rate plummeted in half back down to 3%. The free market was trying desperately to get our economy headed in the right direction, but the government destroyed any progress that was made. 42% of the phony GDP growth we saw last quarter came from the government's destructive cash for clunkers program. And so here's a car that people own that they would drive without any payments. Then a car will clunkers. They own Let's destroy that. Let's give you $4,500 before acting on the anything. Now, every month, you have to make a car payment that you didn't have before. This is great. This is really how you 
would not take our U.S. dollars for their exports. We had to send them a bunch of metal and steel for them to give any type of credit to the U.S. A lot of people don't realize that. That was the brainchild of the Chinese embassy, not the U.S. Cash for Clunkers isn't the government's only wasteful new program. They recently extended the home buyer's tax rebate, which credits a first-time home buyer or somebody who hasn't owned a home in three years, $8,000 for buying a house. They are also giving out $6,500 to those who lived in their prior home for five years or more and now wish to buy a new home. Not only that, but if you can't afford to pay your mortgage, the government is now going to allow you to rent your home from Fannie Mae at a reduced rate in a new Deed for Lease program. The Home Buyer's Tax Rebate and Deed for Lease programs are designed to create artificial demand for houses and keep housing inventory off of the market. This is creating the false signal that the real estate market has bottomed and now is a good time to buy real estate. Unfortunately, Americans who buy real estate at this time will get slaughtered. The average U.S. home currently costs 20,000 ounces of silver. The last time the Federal Reserve rapidly increased its money supply back in the 1970s, we saw home prices fall from 20,000 ounces of silver down to a low of 2,000 ounces of silver. The bottom line is, if you invest in silver today instead of real estate, you might be able to afford a house 10 times nicer in 5 to 10 years. Most Americans today believe dollars are a safe asset because it has a number on it that always stays the same, while gold and silver's nominal prices can sometimes be very volatile. What's going to happen to the dollar when Americans wake up and realize it is actually the riskiest asset of all? Americans have come to accept inflation as being normal. They've learned from their parents that it was only 60 years ago when it cost five cents for a glass bottle of Coke, five cents for a pack of baseball cards, five cents for a Hershey chocolate bar, 15 cents for a burger at McDonald's, 16 cents for Kellogg's cornflakes, and 50 cents for a movie ticket. But they see nothing wrong with this because inflation occurred over a long period of time. It took 25 years for our national debt to double from $257 billion in 1950 to over $533 billion in 1975. Most recently, our national debt has more than doubled from $5.8 trillion in 2001 to its current level of over $12 trillion in just eight years. Our national debt is now growing three times faster than it did decades ago, which means we should expect a very minimum of three times faster inflation. Therefore, if it took 60 years for a movie ticket price to rise from 50 cents to $7.50, it will most certainly rise to at least $112.50 within the next 20 years. And that's a best-case scenario. Americans may not see much price inflation today because major U.S. banks are currently hoarding $860 billion in excess reserves. Congress passed legislation in late 2008 allowing the Federal Reserve to pay interest on the reserves banks keep 
parked at the Fed. However, as some of these banks begin to make loans, price inflation will increase to a level that is higher than the interest they collect. This will force the other banks to also make loans, and we will see a huge flood of dollars entering the system all at once. I heard you uh, talk about you use pricing as, as a reference and that uh, purely printing more money doesn't cause inflation, which was really new news to me. And I wonder if you tell me what you think causes inflation. Well, let, let's be clear what's, what's going on. Um, the Federal Reserve is not putting money out in, into, the, into the economy. What we're doing is we're creating bank reserves. That's money that the banks hold with the Fed. So it's just sitting there idly. It's not chasing any goods, okay? So as long as those bank reserves are sitting idly, broader measures of money that measure the circulation of money. But it, but it won't sit there idly forever. The right, purpose exactly. of it is not to sit there idly forever. And, right. And, and, and while there may be a time lapse, certainly, unless that money gets sucked back in uh, exactly. and out of circulation, it's going to cause inflation. There's no denying it. It's not sucked back in, but as I was describing, we have ways of sucking it back in. How? Well, one way to do it is by raising, interest, raising the interest rate we pay on those reserves, which induces banks to keep the money with us instead of lending it out or circulating it through the economy. To counteract the inflation of the 1970s, the Federal Reserve needed to raise interest rates in 1980 to 21.5%. With interest rates currently being held at an artificially low level of 0% for an extended period of time, artificially high interest rates of 21.5% or more will once again be needed to counteract the damage being done today. In 2009, the U.S. government spent $383 billion on interest payments to holders of our national debt. Considering that most of our national debt is now made up of short-term T-bills, if we see the Federal Reserve raise interest rates to 21.5%, our interest payments could grow to over $2.58 trillion when our entire government tax receipts in 2009 were only $2.185 trillion. It will be impossible for Obama to meet his budget projection and cut the deficit in half from $1.6 trillion in 2009 to $761 billion in 2012. Most likely by 2012, we will be looking at three or four trillion dollar budget deficits or more. Therefore, the trend of accelerating national debt growth is likely to continue and the next doubling of our debt could actually occur in four years, which means we could see our $112 movie ticket within the next five to ten years. But that's only if the Chinese are dumb enough to keep lending us their money. Most likely, the Chinese will stop lending us their money and just allow the dollar to collapse. As they devalue the dollar and the currencies around the world are worth more, they're going to come in here and buy this country up for dimes on the dollar. So all you people out there, you know who the man you're going to be working for? Well, the man's going to be from China. They're going to be from countries with money. All Americans who ride in taxicabs in major U.S. cities have probably heard dozens of stories from immigrants telling their tales of how they escaped their homeland in order to get to America. In the future, taxicab drivers in Asian countries will be talking about how they escaped America in order to get there. 
there are now thousands of young Americans who are moving to China for jobs. You go to school, you get good grades, you work for 30 years, and then you retire. That system is, is a fraud. It's an illusion. And it hasn't even been tested. It's been one big experiment. We have an education system here in America where high schools teach students nothing other than the need to get deeply into debt to obtain a college degree that is worthless because everyone else has one. How about getting out of college and being, what, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars in debt? Look, we know Ivy League graduates at a law school that can't find jobs. You think they're going to be angry? Our nation's most prestigious Ivy League schools are teaching students delusive economic principles. Look what students at Harvard are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to learn from their professors. On healthcare costs, um, Bob is absolutely right that healthcare spending as a bit of GDP is rising, um, and it's largely rising because of technological advance. My own forecast is that that will continue, and that should continue. So actually, I don't. I actually, I'm nervous about prospects uh, to rein in healthcare costs that are too aggressive, because I think that uh, healthcare advances have been a modern form of progress. Harvard is brainwashing students with absolute nonsense. Healthcare costs are not rising due to technological advances. They are rising due to government involvement. You look at the areas where government is not involved. I mean, government is not involved in, you know, in, in, in personal computers. They're not involved in, in, in cell phones. Yet the prices are falling. You know, if the government was involved, the prices wouldn't be falling. I mean, you can easily, they can easily rationalize it by saying, well, of course computer prices are going up. Look how much more sophisticated they are. Look how much more powerful they are. How could, how could the not prices not go up? You know, they make the same arguments with education or health insurance. Well, you know, they say health insurance, well, it's so much more complicated. We have so much better procedures. You know, if there was no government involved, I'm sure health care costs would be falling. Uh, just like other costs are falling in the economy. Because the free market is the best mechanism for driving costs down. If you look at braces or you look at eye surgery or you look at uh, breast enhancements, uh, these prices were really high when the technology first came out. But just like other electronics like plasma TVs or cell phones, this stuff has all contracted. The prices have decreased. Healthcare decreases in prices everywhere the government isn't. Not only is inflation gravitating towards the area of our economy in which the government is involved in the most, but it is also beginning to gravitate towards the goods that Americans need the most, and there is nothing that Americans need more than food and agricultural products. I'm big on agricultural commodities. People need to eat. It's not an optional thing. It's not like, you know what, I really want to buy an ounce of gold, but some people can't afford it. But people can say, you know, I really want to eat, but I really can't afford it. People are going to eat. They're going to acquire food. Um, so that's why, with complete assurity, I, I know, it might sound arrogant, but I know that the prices of basic commodities and food is going to go up, and going to go way up. Before, if you take a dollar, you could give your kid a dollar, and they're able to buy, you know, a cookie, a bag of chips, and maybe a fruit punch. But that's pretty good for a dollar. Right now, you could get a fruit punch. And this was only two years ago. A fruit punch that we sell at 35 cents is now 69 cents. That's double. That's hyperinflated. 
and people don't realize it because it's such at a low level. All the basic things, that's candies, foods, the real small 25 cent things, those are all doubled in price already. Why isn't people realizing that? Look at what happens to the price of rice. As a Korean, I don't shop for rice, but you know a lot of ladies do. They didn't really realize why their that bag of rice from five dollars went to nineteen. Brazil said we're not going to take no more dollars for rice. We'd rather eat it on our own because our economy's economy's growing. And from just Brazil stopping their exports to the U.S., bags of rice went from five dollars to fifteen dollars overnight. Already, you know, I said I was trying to buy a young coconut. They were a dollar nineteen four months ago. I went to buy a young coconut. It was a dollar sixty-nine. You know, forty, fifty percent inflation in months. People on the ground all over America are noticing the price of bread and eggs and things going up. So this inflation, what's important, which is food. So if that's the case, it'd be better to switch those dollars for food right now than not to do so. We're going to see seriously victory gardens popping up all over LA and Southern California, especially Southern California, because you know what? Next year it's going to be horrible for foods. I mean, horrible in a sense that it's going to be so inflated. Because, you know, California this year, the fall harvest was wiped out. There's nothing in California. Where's the avocados? Where's the apples? Where's the pears? There's none. The inventories of agricultural products are the lowest they've been in decades. Not years, Bernie, but in decades. And we're going to have more problems. There are going to be periods when people cannot get food at any price. And this has not happened in our lifetimes. Last year, the farmers couldn't get loans for fertilizers. They had to shut down counties and counties and counties because of the water issue. Uh, there's colony collapse disorder where there's no bees in California. They've been having to import bees from Arizona, and that's not even covering uh, even 10% of the pollination. So we're going to sit a huge food shortage come next year in California. You're going to see hyperinflation big time. Look at cranberries. You know, they used to have Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice. Read the label. It's not real cranberries anymore. They, they, they can't afford real cranberries to make Ocean Spray. Remember, Ocean Spray was famous for using real cranberries. Mm-mm, not anymore. With food and agriculture prices starting to go through the roof, even working-class Americans are becoming dependent on food stamps. If you really want to know how this downturn is affecting people, you look at food stamp use. And right now, we're running 43% of people who are on food stamps have a job. What is going to happen when Americans receive their food stamps, but the shelves at the grocery stores that accept them are empty? What's going to happen when senior citizens receive their Social Security checks, but they aren't worth enough to pay for the gas needed to drive to the bank and cash them? Civil unrest will happen in this country because of hyperinflation. Now, what's going to happen to the entitlements? These entitlements are exploding in our faces. They're bankrupting Europe. They're bankrupting the United States. So Americans will either be broke, dumb, ignorant, and begging for more entitlements, or Americans will watch documentaries like these and educate themselves. And when this wall finally tears down, when this whole system collapses and explodes into our faces over the coming years and months, Americans have the opportunity to tear down the entitlements, to go back to an ownership and individual society where you work hard, you keep what you make, and you take care of your family. And when you can't take care of yourself, you look to family, not the government. 
The National Inflation Association is dedicated to helping Americans prepare for and prosper during hyperinflation. NIA will soon be releasing the world's first ever comprehensive, unbiased review of all of the major online sellers of gold and silver bullion. If you would like to receive this special upcoming report, along with NIA's latest articles and updates about hyperinflation and the collapsing U.S. dollar, sign up today for the free NIA newsletter at inflation.us. Also be sure to check out NIA's newest feature on inflation.us called NIA Answers, where you can submit to NIA your questions about inflation and the economy and search through the database of previously answered questions. Just a year ago, 29 million Americans were on food stamps. Today, it's 36 million Americans. That's just over one in ten. China has already surpassed us in being the largest car buyers in the world. That's not real recovery. That's borrowing money from the future generations and spending it now and then saying we're in recovery. So that's insanity. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit discount gold and silver trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Adisk, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Wednesday, January 21st, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hello, Melody. Wendy Wilson will be joining us here in just a little bit, so let's get started with the market report. And it was a fun day in gold today, gold and silver 
We had a high of 13.06. It settled, uh, uh, went down, came back. Um, couldn't quite figure out uh, why it had the weird fluctuation that it did today at the times that it did. But uh, you're looking at $1,294. You have silver up 17 cents at $18.25. Platinum was down 7 at 12.73, along with palladium was also down 8 dollars at 771 the usdx today was trading down slightly 0.12 9290 crude oil bounced back you know if you're calling a buck 12 and 1.12 a bounce back at 47.59 paper markets today they were you know they barely budged in, in, in the markets today um let me pull up those numbers here. You had the Dow down up 39 points at 17,554. You had the NASDAQ up 12 at 46.67. The S&P was up 10 at 2,032. 10-year yield did pop 0 0.05, uh, yielding 1.85%. So it's kind of a quiet day after the, the big Speech last night, and uh, we'll be talking. Did somebody yeah, speak? I I heard there there was some sort of a, you know, congratulatory speech last night going Who on. Congratulated the speaker <laughs> other than the speaker himself. <laughs> the speaker himself patted himself on the back. He probably walked did, away bruised. Did, his arm, did he? He's probably bruised today. A little mm. black and blue there, but. Um, so we'll be talking about that here in a little bit. And uh, I do believe we have Wendy Wilson on the line. Hello, Melody. Hello, Al. How are you? Hey, Wendy. Good, hey. Wendy. What's, what's, what do you got for us today? Well, help me out, Melody. Did we cover body maps last time? No, we did not. Oh, okay, great. Well, let's do that. And we can save projections or predictions for healthcare in 2015 for next time. Um, body maps. Um, Scientific machine is getting into technology that will scan the human body from head to foot. Uh, the, the new technology is going to be used to spy deep into tissues, even read your blood vessels, and make roadmaps of them, uh, basically to identify you. It's for an identification software program. Now, some experts think that this is just the beginning. It appears to be a Star Trek experience in scanning the body for health problems. But technology wants to promote uh, is really uh, multiple scans of the body and computer software automation of, um, of where, you know, you have Dr. Kiosk. You really don't have anybody helping you, no nurses, no assistants or anything when you need to go have a, a diagnosis done. So this is all called the biometrics. And Al and Melody, the seat of biometrics, started back in 1879 with a French police clerk by the name of Alphonse Berleton. He conceived the idea that people should be identified by specific body measurements. And fingerprinting actually was the first crude step towards the biometric age. So we're moving into more computers and algorithms and technology that's going to know every square inch of your body to identify you as you. And one of the uh, new things when you go to the optometrist's office or your ophthalmologist to get an eye exam, 
is they're promoting this new OptoMap technology. It's a, a laser scan that maps your eye. Uh, a lot of people that wear contact lenses are encouraged to get this scan because it gives them a better accuracy to the fit of the contact lens. But there are some issues with it, and I'm sure you'd like to know what those are, right? I was hoping you'd tell us. Okay. Well, um, uh, there was a reporter, Angela Epstein. She was with the UK Daily Mail, and she was investigating writing a story on this new OptiMac Eye technology that's being marketed as a superior early warning detection that something's wrong with the health of your eyes. So um, patients are convinced, she said by staff, that the old exams could miss something very important, and they should opt to get the new scan. And the cost of the scans are coming down, too, because uh, they used to cost an extra $100 to have the scans, but now they can be included in an eye exam somewhere between um, $99 and $170. But they, they say that the scan can help them uh, see 80 to 85% of the retina. It can help uh, with early warning signs of diseases like glaucoma and diabetes and even cancer and macular degeneration. So the scans map the cells of your eye, which are very tiny, and also the blood vessels, too, that feed the eye. And patients are told that with your cells on the scan look like fish scales or honeycomb, that's the normal, healthy way your uh, eye cells should look. Now, um, so Angela goes and she gets an eye exam. She gets one done. And uh, her, her scan of her left eye appeared normal, but the right eye, they said, had some anomalies, these little tiny black specks, which scared her. And these scans can pick up big pigmentations, which could indica indicate some health issues like retinal tears. So in Angela's case, uh, she was told to go home and come back the next day for a further examination, which, guess what, was the old ex eye exam, the one that you normally would get, to rule out <laughs> any life-threatening problems with her uh, vision. Um, so she had 24 hours of lots of anxiety and worry, but all she had basically um, was an adhesion. Uh, it was unthreatening, and it was a false flag. And doctors are telling people these scans, these OptiScans, are huge for false flags like that. Uh, one ophthalmologist by the name of Dr. Larry Benjamin, he works for the Royal College of Ophthalmology. He says screening uh, done by OptiMap might be helpful for those with conditions such as diabetes. But the majority of people have very little abnormalities, and even these black specks in the eyes can be benign. So if you could spot early warning signs with these cases, uh, more could be done to prevent sight loss. But someone who has no family history of eye problems, disease, or symptoms should think twice about having the laser scan. And laser scans, I don't know, have either one of you had one of these scans done? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Okay. okay. <laughs> the only thing I might get is tasered. I don't think I'll get lasered, but I might get lasered. But go okay. On. Well, it's a bright red laser brain that, you know, is, is swift, and it goes over your eye, but it's almost like looking directly into a flashbulb. It, it blinds you, for sure. And in the state of South Carolina, you're not allowed to point a red laser at anybody's eyes. It's against the law because you can, quote, damage their eyes and blind them. So I have to wonder about this equipment, you know? Yeah, I understand that. It's, it's like a lot of what happens in medicine. Yeah. All of this 
technical equipment, the diagnostic equipment. The nice thing about it is it costs a lot of money to buy one of these machines, and yeah. it adds money to your bill. It becomes a capital investment for the doctors, the optometrists, whoever, mm. and you wonder, are we really getting medical care, or are we just seeing another reason to spend more money? Yeah, well, according to Dennis Robertson, he's an MD, he says if you choose to have a laser retina scan, make sure it's um, a complement to and not a substitute for the traditional eye exam. So he says go with the traditional. But I got some and more scans. By traditional, does he mean having a living optometrist peer into your eye to see what's going on? That's what he means. All right. Okay. Well, I got another scan that's very interesting. It's the scan of your tongue. Uh, one of the newest scans invented is the tongue scan, and it's got software to identify a person. So this is another identifying feature of someone. It's being developed in Hong Kong at the Polytechnic University Biometrics Research Center. Apparently, the shape of the tongue is unique for each individual. So these lasers will scan your tongue to create a 3D picture, and they can do that in like three seconds. And researchers at VIT University in India have taken this digital image of your tongue and combined it with their analytic software to identify illnesses. So they say the color, the shape, the size, the texture of your tongue can indicate if you have something wrong like a vitamin deficiency or someone has extreme pharmaceutical toxicity or even a fungal infection. So tongue scan. So stick out your tongue and say, ah, Al. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Did the NSA get that? I don't know. But they're, uh, they're doing their own scans. We got the doctors doing uh, biometric scans. I'm mm. curious, what's the probability that if you get one of these retinal scans, that it will be submitted ultimately to the duly constituted authorities, and they will use it as a means of identification? Well, it has to be because according to the Affordable Care Act, all these medical uh, divisional uh, specialties, doctors, ophthalmologists, oncologists, you name it, they have to have um, a computer that is, uh, that is in sync with the Affordable Care Act, and uh, all that data gets uh, put up into the big data package. Of course it is. Absolutely. That's where it's going. Um, but there's also some scanning going on privately in people's homes, uh, computer companies are coming out. They're tapping into the biometrics field, and what they're manufacturing is technology with your home computer. So um, Futsu uh, it has uh, some peripherals. They've made some peripherals called the Palm Secure PC Login Kit, and it's part of your mouse for your uh, computer, and it can authenticate your user. In other words, you wouldn't have to worry about typing in an ID or anything. It would be able to analyze if you're the owner and user just by looking at the veins in the palm of your hand. So it scans the pattern of your veins. And how reliable do you suppose that is? Well, according to the Opti um, a map of your eye, your veins in your eye can be um, just as, as accurate as a iris scan or a fingerprint, more accurate actually than a fingerprint. So the vein pattern is unique to each individual. Well, I don't doubt it. The only problem, I'm paranoid about putting any more security onto my computer than I absolutely have to, because I'm afraid that if I put too much security on there, 
I'm the one person who won't be able to use my computer. What's a, what is the password? Melody, what password did I use? Mm-hmm. I know. Uh, you have, to have, you have yeah. to have a whole thing, a thing for passwords. You know, you just you get lost in. I understand that, but uh, you know, it's I uh, my mentality is to use it like a like a typewriter, and uh, it doesn't disturb me. I don't want people from the outside on the internet breaking in, but I'm the only one around here who wants to use this thing, so I'm not concerned. But I'm just telling it. Uh, I wonder about these, you know, especially when they're new. Got a new scanning device, and it's going to work just as well as Windows 8. Right well, out of the box. It'll be magnificent. Well, the problem with all the biometrics, the biometric field has its problem, and one of the big ones that it faces is its increased risk of staying secure. So yeah. the data is extremely vulnerable to counterfeiting, and stronger and stronger encryption has to be implemented. And a lot of security firms are using dual biometric systems simultaneously to confirm identity. And at some point, the 3D high-resolution software to help with security is going to be outdated. And they're looking for new things. And one of the things they're looking at is heat sensors to make sure you're human, uh, not a robot. Uh, So uh, I suppose um, maybe a drop of blood to confirm who you are is, uh, is the next thing. You know, it's a little bit of DNA. I don't know. But uh, I, I think it's an interesting uh, realm that's being connected to healthcare, and uh, you proving who you really are. Tim? I agree. Everything digital right now can be hacked. I mm-hmm. doubt that there's any such thing as real security on the internet. Uh, if people are sufficient, if they are sufficiently sophisticated, they can take whatever data you've got. You know, like banks can't even protect accounts. Well, and and, and um, I watched the show on quantum physics. I think on PBS, uh, some guy at MIT, a, a physics major, he created a quad computer chip, and a quad chip works extremely quickly. Uh, so all your banking security, uh, all your algorithms that are are for internet secure things for banking and whatever, are all on based on real numbers, you know, prime numbers, and so. Uh, you can have long strings of prime numbers, so it's really time-consuming and too hard for anybody to uh, decrypt that. But this guy has created a quantum trip that can decrypt long streams of prime numbers in a matter of seconds. So if he wants to, he can break the Internet. He can break I that. that. Yeah. And if he's doing it now, we can wonder whether the CIA, for example, and other government data processing services, uh, they may have been doing the same thing for years. You just can't count on security. If it's digital, it can be easily hacked into. It's dangerous. It's convenient. But because it's convenient, easily, it's easy. All you got to do is you've got a sensor here, got a scanner. It's easy. Well, if it's easy and it's convenient, it also means that it's easy to hack into. I agree. Almost, you know. So what do you do for security and privacy when these people are trying to scan you instead of getting, I'm not scammed, the doctor didn't scam me, he scanned me. You see what I'm saying here? (laughs) Yeah. But either way, scammed or scanned, you pay out some money, and where's the security? I don't know. The world is just changing, and it's not something that you can say is good, you can't say it's bad. It's just changing, and it's certainly headed in that direction. Why don't you give us some contact information, Wendy? Sure. 
uh, they can uh, request a, our brand new 15th anniversary product catalog at uh, apothecary herbs at thepowerherbs.com, or they can call toll free at 866-229-3663-866-229-3663. We do have a 15% off uh, discount coupon on our homepage that's good through the weekend, so uh, hurry because that expires soon. All right, Wendy, thanks very much. That's Wendy Wilson from thepowerherbs.com at 866-229-3663. Melody and I will be back in just a moment. Please stay tuned to Financial Survival. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit discount gold and silver trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19, 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices.
Sermon Alfred Adams, Kira's Melody, Cedar Sturman Financial Survival, and the program is brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver, 1-800-375-4188 for all your gold going needs. What's next, Melody? Oh, a lot of things going on, Al. U.S. home construction today, that supposedly rose 4.4% in December. Those are new construction of new homes, supposedly rebounded. Um, they started at the annual adjusted, seasonally adjusted annual rate of 1.9 million in December, and an increase. Uh, however, for all of 2014, builders started construction of 1.01 million new homes and apartments. Um, however, at the top of the peak of the housing boom, uh, builders had started to work on two. 0.07 million homes. So it seems like we're still a far cry away from where we were in 2005, even though they tout these numbers that things are great. And um, um, and what's interesting too is that the the, the the number of new homes they only represent only a fraction of the housing market, and um, they do have a big impact supposedly on the economy, um, but. Um, uh, you know, where they do create jobs and so forth and tax revenue, but still this is just a small fraction of the housing market. Well, it reflects the Obama State of the Union speech oh, yes. last night oh. insofar as he's saying, yeah, 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 we're in the recovery, the recovery is taking place. No, it's not. Not. We are perhaps moving toward a recovery, but there is no recovery here. We have not yet recovered. A number of indicators are not yet at the same level we saw back in 2008. All right? You know, we've made some progress lately, and that's a good thing. But it's one of those things, again, the government has an obligation to tell us lies, tell us lies, tell us sweet, sweet lies, because the system runs on public confidence. All right? They've got to make us believe everything is hunky-dory. Does anyone say hunky dory anymore, Melody, or is it just am I the last one? No, I no, I don't think you're the last one. But okay. uh, we're we're certainly in a group that is declining. All right, there's less and less. It's <laughs> become an exotic terminology. Do you say hogwash? <laughs> Not in mixed company. Okay. All right, I, I, I'm too much. You got. <laughs> I've got that gentleman thing going. That's been you know. It's you senior citizens. We have manners. It's younger people, if they say these words anyplace, they feel like it. But the point I'm getting to is the government, our economy has become a function of psychology of the investor more than the objective facts that underlie the investment. People aren't going out and investing in the stock market, in the Dow Jones, for example. They're not going out because they have investigated a, perf a particular stock and looked at the profit and loss ratio, ratio and tried to discover how much, what's the debt-to-profit ratio. I don't know all of the little technical things. I know that people still do that, but it's not controlling to the same degree as the politics of Janet Yellen or someone else in a position of power feeding us a little happy talk, and all of a sudden the markets jump. Not because... The corporations are more profitable, but because by saying a few magic words, Janet Yellen may have restored some of our confidence. And the market, which is intended to measure the investments, right, 
instead becomes a measure of public confidence. It measures the investor's psychology. And when you think about that, we've got the horse, you know, the cart before the horse. Instead of the investments determining the market, the investors are determining the market. And that's not an absolute truth, but there's a point to this. There's a, and it seems that we are unduly dependent on investor psychology. And so the government, they're sitting back and say, well, we don't have to create an environment where people can actually make some money. We just have to create an environment where people believe they can make some money. And there's some truth to that. That's not, you know, there's truth to that, but it becomes a peculiar kind of truth. What is the proper way to invest, Melody? Do you invest based on the investor's confidence in the whole market, in the economy, in the Obama administration, or do we invest based on the objective attributes of a particular investment vehicle? Based on the fundamentals and those trends. I understand. The trends are constantly changing. And look at the trends that we have to follow today. Um, just as you described, uh, look at the condition of the world. Uh, look at all the hot spots in the world, and, and everyone is just waiting. You can ask anyone. Everyone is just waiting for that flash to happen. Yeah, I know. And uh, it, it's certainly coming our way, and you can have predictions for this year, next year, two years from now. But uh, uh, it's coming, and it's coming rapidly. I mean, you have the, the elite, the global elite in Davos. Um, getting together and and you know it's you know it truly is amazing how people just continue to ignore the the negative and spin it to the positive and yeah, that's what the government wants and there's a point to it I mean they're looking for optimists but of course is optimism and there's it's it's a, you know everyone wants to be optimistic mm-hmm. right. But there is a point in time where your optimism becomes counterproductive. When the reality of the situation is grim, it may be fun to have some optimists around and say, well, we'll work our way through it. It's all going to work out. Well, yeah, maybe we will, but maybe we need to actually deal with the problem rather than our perception of the problem. We get optimism is helpful, but maybe it's not enough. And sometimes it may even be contrary to our best interests. We need to look at the problem and say, what is happening here? And don't give me, you know, sunshine. I want to know what is the problem. And let's see if we can deal with the problem. But optimism, you know, essentially tends to deny that there's a problem. You know, it's funny. You see all these people, if you watch the mainstream news, the financial programs, they parade all these Davos attendees uh, mm-hmm. you know, with interviews and so forth. Do you really believe what they come out and talk about is what goes on behind closed doors? Of course. How many people are going to be there? Well, there's 2,500 heads of state and multinational corporations. They do do the bidding of the elite, and, and they do do the bidding of the New World Order. I mean, that's how it all comes together, and that's how they may continue to get become wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. That's how there's been so many billionaires created. But whatever they do, they decide for them, and certainly not for the people of various countries around the world, and not, certainly not for the United States. So they do serve a purpose. I went to an I went to a uh, a conference back in the probably 1970s on anthropology, 
And there were, I have no idea, 1,500, 2,000 people at the conference. And it all sounded very official, and everyone was going to the conference, and we're going to study anthropology and the rest of that sort of thing. But the fact is, it was just an excuse to go on a trip and go hang out in some bars and chase around for a while until you had to show up for a conference or two that, you know, during the day there'd be there. And what I'm just trying to get to is if we've got 2,500 people going to Davos, I'm going to make it bet there's only 50 of them there that actually make much difference. But the, those, those are the ones, you're and right. 50 are there just to go skiing, But those wild 50. women in the, in the saloons, and uh, go home. But those 50 certainly have major impacts. Now, I believe these meetings, meetings of Davos today, maybe they're not important as much as they were 10 years ago, perhaps, you know, to where things were really, where they could go in there and truly make these changes. Uh, it is a little more difficult in today's world uh, because they've already accomplished so much. You know, well, they've also their... lost a certain amount also. What can you do today at Davos, given that tomorrow – um, the European Central Bank is presumably going to announce what it's going to do about quantitative easing. Oh, all these guys will all be positioned so they don't get hurt. The elite, you know, seldom get hurt if you're one of the elite. And, uh, you know, you know. Well, so what I'm trying to say is this is like having, I don't know. I mean, I'm like certainly not defending the Super Bowl tomorrow, and we're planning on how to play football today. There's there's something. Well, they've already probably Tony having this meeting a week or ten days after the European Central Bank makes its decisions. If it hasn't already decided, and they already don't. They already, they already know. know what's they already. Going. I don't know, but um, they already know. When you have it's a little anticlimactic, the big news is what's the European Central Bank going to do? And Davos, what are they going to talk about? The European Central Bank is going to do something. Davos is going to have a conversation and go out and drink wine and, uh, you know, fondue, eat fondue. Well, they allow to keep these multi-corporations going, and they do make their connections and so forth, and they do, in, in fact, help with the manipulation of the governments for the stock markets. So, you know, it's I don't think their power or they're as significant as they once were I agree. when this was all coming together. Uh, now, now they might be just as, you know, clapping everybody on their back and saying what they've accomplished now. But uh, the central bankers, they need them. Well, it They need be. a lot of these people. And why do they need them? How many will be there as, whether they know it or not, as sacrificial lambs? I mean, you have the, you How have many of the people who think they're movers and shakers will be at Davos, and the bankers are saying – we got to eat some of our own now. We've got to cannibalize some Chris, of our own. You, you, have, you have the Christine Lagarde there. You have you have a lot of big heads of states that are there. Yeah, just for other people who think they're big, and maybe they're not big enough. Well, you know, it's one of those you things know, well, sacrificed. I would say that the people at Davos, if I had to guess, I'd say that after the situation that developed from the Swiss National Bank releasing the peg on the on the uh, Swiss the Swiss crone relative to the euro. I'd say there's people at Davos, there may be, there's maybe an undercurrent of fear. And they're wondering, oh my gosh, because there was a big reaction to a relatively, to a seemingly small event. There was a big reaction financially to Switzerland breaking the peg 
the the relations, a fixed relationship with the euro. They were significant in some corporations, uh, uh, some financial institutions, not a majority or anything like that, but someone out of business. They have to be wondering, oh, my gosh, how fragile is this system? And is there anything they can do about it? I mean, they're faced with that. It, what, you know, I'm going to Davos because I'm a mover and a shaker. Well, that's nice. That's nice. Everybody likes to hear me. Oh, I know a friend of mine went to Davos. Very important guy. Maybe they don't even know what's going on over there. There's got to be a lot of people that are deeply concerned. What is happening? What's going to happen tomorrow? Well, I think a lot of this is already written into the markets as far as what's going to happen tomorrow. They've been talking about a European stimulus, uh, very similar to what Bernanke did with our QE, purchasing a bond. They've been talking about it forever. So, you know, it's time that they get down to do something. Um, But like I say, they're going to do something. The people at Davos are going to talk about doing something. And and there's a difference here. And they've got to be concerned. So I don't know. It's one of those things. It's just interesting to me. Davos today, tomorrow we find out what the European Central Bank is going to do. To me, it should be the other way around. We should find out what is the European Central Bank going to do. And then Davos another week, they are week, 10 days, whatever, and they say, okay, here's how we're going to adjust to that. Here's what we're going to do to compensate for whatever the European Central Bank did. If well, it they, did something that seems stupid or dangerous or whatever. Well, they will be able to do it, so. But they won't be at the meeting. Sure they will. It's only tomorrow. But what I'm trying to keep, but Davos isn't going to last for another week or 10 days. Well, they, they make their connection, and their connections are long after the mm. the meeting also, so. Let's talk about the, the European. Let's get off Davos. Let's talk about the European um, well, quantitative yeah. easing. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's what they're bringing up. And there's an article here from Ambrose Evans Pritchard from the Telegraph in England. And he's talking about currency devaluations are spreading into every, re, uh, in every region of the world. And he's talking about currency wars are going on. And we're the competing countries are fighting in these currency wars to do, to prove that their currency is worth less than their competitors' currencies. And they achieve, they make their currency worth less by means of inflation. And part of this article argues that quantitative easing is just another form of inflation. That's so they put all that money out. It was intended to cause inflation, and the inflation would make the dollar worth less or the yen worth less or the euro now worth less, and then they would have an advantage in international trade. But when you stop to think about it, this is so crazy. He's asking, and they ask, uh, well, you're seeing true currency wars, and everybody is doing it, and I have no idea where it's going to end. And where will it end? It has to end when the currency, any particular currency, becomes worth less. And it becomes zero because that's what they're fighting for. Where's the bottom? The bottom is when the dollar 
which is still worth a nickel compared to what it was 40 years ago. The dollar, when it becomes worth a zero, when it falls to four cents and three cents and two cents and one cent compared to what it once was, at that point in time, in theory, we have reached the bottom. Same thing goes for the euro. Same, and people are fighting to get to that bottom. They said, I want to prove our currency is worth less than your currency. And their guy says, no, we have the worthless currency. And somebody else, no, no, our currency is worth less than all of yours. It's crazy. And how can it end other than something like hyperinflation? We'll talk more about this when we return on a mo- in a moment to financial survival. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom. Please stay tuned. We will be back. will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate in those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today. Or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. 4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Hey, folks, I'm Alfred Addis, here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival, and we've been talking about one person's comment in an article by Ambrose Evans Pritchard from The Telegraph in England. And he says, I have no idea where this is going to end. It's going to end in hyperinflation. If at least, unless unless the government say, no, we're not going to devalue our currencies anymore, 
We don't want to inflate. We're not going to, and that means we're not going to stimulate. If we don't want to inflate, then it won't end in hyperinflation. But it ends with the currency going down, right? And it stops at some point. Who knows? Maybe the dollar continues to decline in value to where instead of being worth four cents, it's worth two and a half cents compared to what it was 40 years ago. I don't know where it ends, but if it persists, currency wars persist, the inflation will turn into hyperinflation, and the currency involved in these currency wars will turn out to be worthless. And this is an important insight from my perspective, because it's telling you that inevitably, if the big boys are going to continue to argue that my currency is worthless than your currency, another guy is, no, I have worse currency than all of you. That is their object. We are going to get down to where the currencies are worth less and less and less. And that tells us that if you're going to store your wealth in terms of these fiat currencies, you may have $100,000 today, and by the time they get done, you'll have 50000 and maybe nothing. The whole idea of these currency wars that they depend on inflation is one of the sales points for getting gold or silver. I mean, it's it's bizarre. We have a world where people are fighting to prove that their my, my currency is worth less than your currency. That's like saying my hundred thousand dollars in the bank is worth less than your hundred thousand dollars. People are working against what you would think is their own best interests. They're working against the best interests of their nation. They're working against the best interests of their creditors. Right? And where are they doing this? to reduce their debt. If I owe $100,000 and I can pay it off with dollars that are only worth 20 cents as compared to what they are worth today in terms of purchasing power, I have reduced my debt by 80%. I still pay $100,000, but it's only got $20,000 in purchasing power. I'm getting over. So this is great for debtors, but it's terrible for creditors. And how do you run a society, an economy, when you are wiping creditors out and destroying their wealth? How do you preserve wealth in that sort of environment? And one of the answers is you get into something that is not based on a promise to pay, which means not a piece of paper. All of your stocks, all of your bonds, all of your pensions, I've said it a hundred times. Oh, I haven't said it a hundred times. I've said it probably ten times. All that paper is not a payment. It's only a promise to pay. Real wealth is a payment. You want to preserve whatever wealth you have, you need to get into something tangible. For example, gold or silver. You know, Al, today Richard Russell, 90 years old, newsletter writer, economist, Mm -hmm. he proclaimed that the gold bull has just spit in the Fed's face by breaking out of its massive faith. He says the world depression has settled down on mankind. In the meantime, every nation is struggling to cheapen its currency. One way of doing this is that central banks are creating new trillions of assorted world currencies. It's rapidly dawning on the wealthy 1% that the fiat currencies they hold are fast becoming worthless. The worst of the fiat currencies have suddenly come into question, and the reaction of big money is to swap their garbage currencies for the only currency that has held its worth in all of history, gold. 
And it is true. It's like you can feel this new rush into gold. I mean, I was looking at the numbers for the U.S. Mint, and I, and you always have a little distortion in January because of the the rush into 2015, and, you know, we've been buying, locking in prices on, so you get a little bit of distortion. But there's big numbers already for the month of uh, January for both uh, gold and silver this month. So you can feel the change and uh, – uh, that the that the bull market in gold has resumed. I agree that you can feel the change. You're, it's it's a subjective sort of thing, and it certainly looks that way. It feels that way. We're wondering right now. But we're, I know a lot of people are sitting back and wondering if the government's going to be able to slap the price of gold back down. Well, it's up one hundred fifteen dollars. And month. that doesn't mean we're going to see fifteen hundred by the next week. Of course not. That's not. No, I get that. A bull run, but could I mean, it fall? Could it fall significantly? Pull back. It, certainly it could. Yep, we could have a pullback. But can we have a hundred and fifteen dollar pullback at this time? Unlikely. I think it's unlikely too. I think, and it raises a real interesting question to me, at least, and that is, why haven't the powers that be slapped gold down? in the last month. Why have they allowed it to rise $115 in a month's time? We've watched this over the course of the last year or thereabouts, maybe more than that. Gold would go up, and you go up, maybe you might have a day when it went up $15, $20, and so yeah, it was a good day for gold, and then in the next day or so, it gets slapped back down, maybe 25 or $30, and then gold comes back up, and it's been holding in a range of somewhere around $1,200. Just a ballpark figure. But now... Gold has jumped $115 in the last 30 days. And you have to wonder, is that evidence that the powers that be have changed their mind and they're not going to try to suppress the price of gold anymore? Is it evidence that the market pressures pushing the price of gold higher have finally grown so strong that the powers that be just said, look, we can't keep selling our own gold in order to maintain the illusion that the price is next to nothing. But it seems to me that it's a valid question. Why hasn't somebody slapped the price of gold down in the last month? And it's either because they have changed their mind about suppressing the price of gold or they've lost the capacity to do it. Or a third possibility is there. We just wait. We'll show you. I think one more month like this last 30 days. I don't think it's any of those. I, I, I think, you know, for the past, you know, when we look from, from the, the, the drop from 1900, and I really view it as 17, you know, so we, yes, we did hit 19, but um, we've seen it for the past, what, two years, two, two and a half years. Um, we couldn't, they couldn't have high gold prices. We were like they were like treading water. The economy was like treading water. They, they need to build it up. They needed to to withstand it and do what they needed to do. And and I think at this point in time, there's changes coming. And I think it's just reality what? that they can't force the price of gold down. Trust me, if they can keep the price down, they would. But the reality, they can't. And uh, um, I think that is what is happening. And, and yes, people are beginning to recognize that they, they need to get rid of these fiat currencies now, and they are heading into gold. I think we're seeing something happen here. We'll watch how this unfolds. But it's certainly encouraging. For those of you who have gold, and you've saved some of your wealth in that form, in the last, in the last 30 days, the value of your holdings have increased 
$115 for every ounce of gold you've got. That's not a bad deal. I mean, if you've got 100 ounces, you just made yourself, what, what $10,000? I don't think the bull market in gold, the bull market in gold started when they placed us on a fiat currency. Well, when we had the fiat currency, we started in the bull market in gold. And, uh, you know, certainly we had the trends and certainly periods of time has kept the price of gold higher and gold sure. going higher, and it will continue. Yeah, we had a two-year break, yep. you know, so to speak. But uh, the bull market in gold, to me, didn't, didn't stop. The trend was always there. And it has to continue. And it will continue, period. Price of gold is going higher. If it doesn't go higher, all things are relative to what is going on. And the price of paper, the purchasing power of paper, is going lower. If gold stayed at these levels, I would prefer gold at this level during a collapse of a currency or a default than holding paper. And that's what people don't understand. You will be better off holding gold and silver no matter what happens, no matter what scenario is created. Why? Because there will always be a market for it. It will never There will not necessarily be a market for your paper. You may still have a bond that's worth, I says, $100,000 on it. Well, okay. Let's see if you can sell it. Is there anybody out there who wants to buy your piece of paper? There will always be someone who wants to buy your gold. It's not clear that your paper will have value in the context of, you know, worst-case scenario or, you know, something headed in that direction. Gold will have value. Paper may not. It'll have less value for paper, maybe no value. Where's the the buyer? Always a buyer for gold. And we've seen how quickly with the the, – drop in these brokerage houses. I mean, a decision by a central bank, by the Swiss National Bank, it put brokerage houses out of business that had been business for 30, 40 years. And what did they rely on? They relied on paper and paper debt instruments. And these were allegedly intelligent people. These are the kind of people who could sell you these investments and say, this is reasonable and responsible and harumph, harumph. We're big-time bankers, and we know how these things work. And they didn't have them. the money to uh-huh. cover the losses. They didn't have the money to cover their mar- their losses. Uh-huh. And all their accounts with their margin, with their margins came into play. They couldn't pay. I know. They lost, and, and so it seems so simple that people can't understand. Uh-huh. Well, the, what people don't understand is that the paper markets have worked well throughout most of your lifetime and mine. Mm-hmm. And we are all conditioned to believe, oh, well, it was good for my dad, it'll be good for me, it'll work, you know, the stock market. Uh, maybe not. It's maybe just a blip. We'll watch and see how this works out. But just because it's worked for the last 40 years does not prove that it's a contender for gold, which has worked for the last several thousand years. Right? It's one of those things you have to look at this. We can't give the unfortunate thing is we can't tell you when the stuff is going to hit the fan. And no one can, so far as I'm in. I certainly can. There's the problem. 
there's a lot of predictions out there. Yeah, there's a lot know? of predictions out there, and you got to <laughs> take them all with a certain amount of salt. But nevertheless, you can look at the momentum. You can connect the dots. You can see the direction, identify the trend. You know, we're probably going to a point where the paper is going to turn out to be worth much less than it is today. It may be worth nothing. What do you do? You know, some of this is not just about investing in the point, from the perspective of how can I make a fast buck. Some of this is about how do I preserve the wealth that I have, accumula- that I have accumulated over the last 20, 30, 50 years. That wealth is your currency, it's your land, it's your house, it's whatever you've got for investments, and it reflects how much you worked. That's your hours. That's your life. It's your blood. It's your energy that's been that's being represented by that piece of paper that says it's a hundred thousand dollars. And likewise, it's your life, your energy that's represented by however many ounces of gold you have. That's what the wealth is. It's the savings from your effort over the past decade, to you know, twenty, fifty years, whatever. That's what that wealth is. You. Your life, it's like, you know, they have a Kodak moment, you know. Take a picture. Oh, here's a picture. Well, that's what your gold is. It's kind of like a Kodak moment for your work and your profitability and your effort. And if you store that Kodak moment, all right, your financial Kodak moment, if you're going to store that in something paper or digital, you may have to remember it. You may remember it, but you may not get it. On the other hand, if you store that Kodak moment of your financial productivity in the form of gold, it's going to be there, right? Worst case scenario, and that's that's what we are looking at, and that's what we're considering. Are we going to are we any closer to that worst case scenario? And if so, when can we expect a real problem? You know, who can say? I don't know, but it certainly looks that we are edging closer to that problem, and if we are not a bad idea to buy while the price is low. Huh? And anything could happen anytime. Heck, you, let me, I'm just going to scoot over to Ukraine. I mean, Russian officials with support from the European Union, they're trying to, they're continuing to try to get the ceasefire in Ukraine back in place. So now you have Russia working with the European Union trying to get the ceasefire back in place after it collapsed over the weekend. Uh, with a full-scale Ukrainian military offensive that was in the in the east part, and uh, Ukraine is opening up their draft. Um, it, it, it's things like this that you know it seems to go away, and then it can come back in, in full force. And there, there, there's tons of these things going on with with Israel. And, and they're, they're all, all related. related. Absolutely. And that's, what, that's what's dangerous. It used yes. to be, if there was a problem in Ukraine, it was, well, it was interesting. It was like, who wins the Super Bowl? Well, it's interesting, but it doesn't necessarily relate to me or Melody or, or most of you in the audience. But now Ukraine does make a difference. It could affect you and me and everybody. Who knows where this is going to go because we have global free trade and one world government and blah, blah, blah. We're all in a if you believe in that, I guess you can stick with paper. If you think this is shaky, you need to get some gold. I'm Alfred Addis. We're out of time. I want to thank all of you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, it's good Lord bless you, Lee Melody, and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye. Uh-huh.
I work all night, I work all day To see the bills I have to pay Ain't it sad Still there never seems to be A single penny left for me
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.